The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Wow, that sounds scary and intimidating and very Japanese. And appropriate, because tonight we're going to be talking about samurai TV shows, specifically a subgenre of Japanese television called Jidai Geki, which literally translates to period dramas. But in this case, we're talking about Samurai period dramas and the great age of samurai period dramas from the 1970s to roughly the very early 1990s um, when Japanese television was filled with the darn things. When it was? <laughs> no, no, it was. It, it, they're not really that popular anymore. They haven't been for a while. And uh, we'll explain that as well. There's, we'll get to that. But uh, before we begin, we should probably start with a little history lesson. Um, actually, sorry, you're going to have to bear with me two small history lessons, um, because both of these are necessary to really understand what I'm going to be explaining and when I'm going to be talking about some of the different shows that uh, uh, we're going to be talking about tonight. So uh, the first history lesson is about the actual Japanese military history. So most of these shows are set during what's called the Edo period, also known as the period of the Tokugawa Shogunate. So short version is this is Japan had a period called the Sengoku period where basically all the different warlords and factions and all that beat the crap out of each other. And eventually Yasu Tokugawa was the winner. That's the name of the dude who was basically the winner in the end. It's a little more complicated than that, but we're not going to worry about that. He basically established himself as the Shogun, which most of you listening probably are familiar with what the Shogun is. We think of him as like the king of Japan or something. Problem is that's not actually accurate. Um, what you need to understand is, is that the Shogun is more like a uh, general. And in fact, sometimes he's called the Great General. In fact, I think that's actually what Shogun means, something like Great General. Is, am I right, Don? Does that mean Great, great General? Yeah, it's, 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 it's something to that effect. There, yeah. There, mm -hmm. I, I know where you're going. There's an easy way to explain it, but I'll do it after you give the big history because Canadians and the British will understand it. Americans won't. Right. Good point. Okay. So <laughs> now the thing you need to understand is during the, this, this fighting period during when they were consolidating power in Japan, um, what happened is this, as I said, there are all these warlords. There's also an emperor. Okay. And so in the Edo period, in the Shogun period, what you have is, is you have two centers of power. One is in Edo or Tokyo. That's where the, the Edo is the name of, sorry, Edo, not Edo. Edo is the name of uh, Tokyo before it became Tokyo. It was the traditional. It was actually a created city, much like uh, Ottawa is in Canada. They wanted to create a new capital that was away from the all the traditional politicking and everything like that. And so they created Edo, which would later become Tokyo. 
the original seat of power in Japan is in Kyoto, um, and that is a good distance away from Edo or Tokyo. I'll just refer to it as Edo from this point on. And that's where the Imperial House sits. Now, the thing is, is the Shogun couldn't really get rid of the Emperor. Because the Emperor was basically, had a position not just as the center of power, but it was also kind of like the Pope, right? So mm -hmm. it would be kind of like the King going and killing the Pope. It, the people would be really, really unhappy. You've just killed your God's representative on Earth, and you can't really do that. So what happened is, is that you ended up with two centers of power. There was the shogunate, the shogun's order, which basically existed as, which was the dominant power, the real power. But then there was also all the traditional noble families and the imperial family, which existed. They were officially out of power, but they were still very influential. So in Western European culture, it would almost be like the king and the church. Think of them as holding those two positions, right? And especially if we're talking about the equivalent, because this is happening in the 1600s. Um, if you want to look at, say, France of that period, you would have like, you know, the king and then you would have like the Pope's representative, the Cardinal. If you want to think three musketeers, that would be the king and Cardinal Richelieu. And you can think that it's not a dissimilar power balance. Um, the imperial power wanes and waxes, etc. But OK, so you've got these two centers of power. All right. The next thing you need to understand about uh, the period is that during the war, there were many clans and warriors that allied with Tokugawa as he was as he was bringing Japan together, and there these became the daimyo, uh, which basically means more or less great leaders, right? and they're basically like the leaders of the different prefectures or provinces of Japan. Now there are two kinds of daimyo. There's the fudai daimyo, which are hereditary, which means that they're people that they were the leaders of the great clans that already existed and fought in the war, and their clans fought on the side of the Tokugawa. Um, then there's the Tozama daimyo, and they are warriors that had great accomplishments, so the shogun gave them the lands of the fudai daimyo that didn't support him during the war. Mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, all, if, you're, if your clan stood against Tokugawa, you got replaced by one of these Fudai, or, sorry, yeah, you got replaced by one of these Tazama Daimyo, who were, yeah, again, the, uh, the guys who stood by him. And the, two, and the Fudai Daimyo and the Tazama Daimyo hated each other, generally <laughs> speaking. They did not like each other at all. The Fudai thought the Tazama Daimyo, being, you know, these who were often literally like brash warriors, right? That had come up, a lot of them were country hicks, not all of them, but many of them. And so the Fudai Daimyo, who are the, the, the old money, the old rich, hated the new rich, basically. And so they did <laughs> not like each other. And they were constantly struggling with each other as well and trying to usurp each other. And the Shogun actually encouraged this because it kept the Fudai and the Tozama from actually teaming up to go against the Shogun. So have you, have you got that audience? So basically there are four centers, roughly, minimum four centers of power in old Japan. Okay. So we've got the emperor, who's the religious leader and the old leader. We've got the shogun who's sitting in Edo, in Edo in his castle and he's doing his best to try to like run the country with his uh, roju, his royal council. And then we've got the two types of daimyo who are all allied and clustered and all don't like each other. So, so as you can guess, this period of Japanese history, especially for the first hundred years or so, was really chaotic. And there were lots of plots and intrigue and they were all fighting each other and they were all stabbing each other in the back and 
all fun stuff like that. Okay, and so the reason I bring this up is is that most of the period dramas we're talking about, in fact, all the ones we're talking about tonight, are all set during this period. Because this is kind of like the high action period where things hadn't completely settled in, where think lots of stuff is happening. Now, a few of the shows we're going to talk about do take place during the later Edo period, where things are a little more solidified as well. Um, but most of them occur during the first half when, because the, the period, the Edo period, as we call it, is in the in Japanese history is a give or take about 200 years, a little more. Um, and so, yeah, so this is what, uh, this is the Japanese history that I think it's important for you to understand so that you understand that it's this really chaotic period in Japanese history mostly. And it's also kind of recent, so it's not, and they, so the Japanese uh, in that period are kind of understandable by modern Japanese, both linguistically and um it's a little bit like our own, um, I guess it would be Victorian period, right? Victorian and the period that came just before the Victorian period, which I'm blanking on, but Renaissance period. And so you've got all this. And oh, by the way, one other minor detail I want to bring up before, just to finish up. The Shogunate runs this place like a police state. And this is something that many people miss about old Japan, especially during this period. It's a police state. It's more like North Korea or Myanmar than it is, say, America or even England. Like we think of like old Japan, it's like, oh, it must be just like England. It must be just like Renaissance England or something. It's not. It's actually, it's its own kind of unique thing. And it gives it its own unique flavor because you've got all these people that are all spying on each other and all hate each other and are looking to usurp each other. And there's all this scheming and all this stuff that was going on back then. And people literally generally live in fear of each yeah. other and um the, <laughs> the the nobles live in fear of the peasants uprising um the nobles live in fear of each other and the peasants live in fear of the nobles and so everybody's just basically terrified of each other yeah um one one thing to consider and this mm -hmm. is what i was getting at before right uh to kind of understand how the balance work if you're part of the british commonwealth mm -hmm. like canada or or britain you know the way that it works is you've got the queen and the royal family, and they're still sort of nominally the power head, but the actual power lies with, like, Parliament and the Prime Ministers. And that's kind of what happens that when good, the... Uh, good comparison, Don. Good comparison, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's when the Tokugawa take over, what ends up happening is the emperor and the emperor's family, because they're divine. It's, it, it's, again, it's like royalty in, in Great Britain was... They're considered literally the children of, of, of God, of the goddess. And that's kind of maintained. They're still nominally the head of power. But what Tokugawa does is he basically says, okay, so you're technically in charge, but I'm the guy that all the dudes with the pointy sticks listen to. So we're going to play it my way and I'm going to let you dress up fancy and sit on your throne. Mm -hmm. And it, mm -hmm. it kind of, it kind of, again, it, 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 it sets up that dynamic that especially say in the modern world where the British royal family, their figureheads, the queen does have some power in in government, but for the most part, they've kind of been edged out. They're there to impress the peasants, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And the real power lies with with essentially the bureaucrats, which is what uh the 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 samurai and the major families end up becoming especially as as the uh the shogunate settles in they become bureaucrats 
more than they 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 were warriors. And again, mm-hmm. when you when you mentioned Victorian England, that's a pretty good, I think, a pretty good summation of it too. Because again, you also had that idea in Victoria England; they were very caste uh, uh, concerned. That yes, yes. The upper and lower didn't mingle, and there was this attitude that the further down the food chain you worked, the less human you were, and that's something that kind of perpetuates during the uh, Edo period in Japan. That the peasants were seen again; they they were they were weren't serfs; they were almost literally properly property of the uh, daimyos for their uh, prefecture. Yep, yep. They they were almost like part of the land or livestock, really. That's about how they were looked on. Um, and they weren't allowed to move around. We should we should add that as well. They had very limited mobility. And definitely, uh, like for example, in many places in Japan during this period, this goes back to my police state comment earlier, you couldn't go outside your area without papers. If they caught you outside your area, especially trying to cross borders between prefectures, and you didn't have permission, they would kill you. That, yeah. That's literally how it worked. You weren't supposed to travel around. They did have people travel. People did travel on pilgrimage and such, but you had to have papers and you had to have permission to do it. And that yeah. was usually limited to people that had uh, connections. Often we'll call it the merchant class or the middle class or people who needed to do it for travel or other official purposes. Yeah, it, it goes with what you were you were saying about they were considered part of the land. It's like when you get to like medieval Europe, the same idea that serfs, yeah, yeah, pr- producing anything, especially food, was super labor intensive. So mm-hmm. if the more people I had, the more population I had under my control, the more I could produce, the more food I could produce, the stronger my army, and that's why peasants weren't allowed to move because, like you were saying. A lot of the daimyo hated each other to begin with, and then they got scheming, and they didn't want, say, the guy next door poaching all your peasants by saying, I'll give you a little less taxes, and everybody leaves and it increases their production. Like like you said, they are literally considered part of the land. Yep, and yeah, you're not allowed to move at all. Uh, again, unless you have permission from one way or the other. At least this is the theory. Now, mind you, we're talking about reality here. And I should bring that up, but but what we're going to be talking about soon is, of course, not reality, <laughs> but uh, the kind of TV show version. But I want to under you to understand the audience, you the audience to understand how reality worked, and then we're going to talk about how TV reality works and how the two <laughs> of them kind of like intermingle intermingle with each other. Okay. So I think that's the good basic history. Don't worry, we're not going to spend much more time on that. A a few little things will probably pop up as we're discussing the individual shows, and I'll talk about their context a little bit, but that that gives you a rough uh, context for that. All right, the next thing I want to bring up um, is Japanese media history. Um, And this is something that, uh, believe it or not, America and the Western world and Japan kind of actually run pretty parallel to each other. Um, in Japan, uh, they had a great age of novels um, in like the beginning of the 20th century, like uh, many countries did, like Europe did, like America did, even before the beginning of the 20th century. But there was an age of, of uh, popular fiction novels, and that, and that eventually led to a, a pulp magazine era that pops up in Japan in the 20s and 30s. Um, mm. It comes to the same as it's going on in America at the same time. Um, it comes to a rather kind of abrupt halt, uh, of course, when World War II breaks out 
and they're having paper shortages, etc. Again, not unlike America. Not unlike America at all. They, uh, they were both kind of running parallel to each other. Um, the, the parallel kind of breaks a little bit once they hit uh, the end of World War II when one wins and one loses. Um, and so, so that's, and the Japanese have to go through this long period of, uh, reconstruction where lots of people are poor and their lives are hard, etc. Um, but I want to take, but I mentioned, and I'm mentioning this about the Pulp Fiction era because of this. So when Americans had their Pulp Fiction era, they had, of course, uh, we have, we've talked about in previous shows, um, think, you know, we had the crime busters like, uh, you know, the shadow and, uh, Doc Savage and, um, where's some other crime busters don do you remember the spider who else a spider agent 13 there were there were, there were tons there, there were was, tons. There was... most of them are forgotten there are just so many of them that we've forgotten most yeah. of them and also at the time there were there were of course uh westerns westerns were actually quite popular uh, among the uh, even in the pulps there were lots of pulp westerns because you know westerns right and so they were they were kind of the dominant thing well over in japan it will come of no surprise that they were telling samurai stories. They were doing the same thing, except they, they, they had their mysteries, they had their pulp adventures and such. They even had superheroes, which we've talked about a little bit in, the, in our history of manga. But they also focused mostly on samurai stories. That was the thing, right? Wandering heroes. Uh, again, you, you'll note that we said just a minute ago that you weren't allowed to wander around, but if you were the right status, you kind of could. And also this is fiction, not quite reality. And so they, there would be these stories about these wandering heroes in old Japan, uh, some of which were samurai, most of which, and this is true for even most of the shows we're going to talk about, are actually ronin. They're actually, you know, masterless samurai who are wandering around in one form or another. But there's some actual samurai too. And so the Japanese had lots of these samurai stories. And, and this even carried in during the World War II period and after World War II, once the Jap- and we get to the 1950s, and in America, you know, TV and, and Japan, TV starts coming up. And unsurprisingly, once we get to the 50s, the Japanese start producing samurai TV shows, just like the Americans are going crazy producing Westerns. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, of course, movies are coming out and they're producing tons and tons of uh, samurai adventure movies and Yakuza and other you know, period adventure movies as well. They're doing tons of that in the 50s and 60s. Just the same as the Americans are producing theirs, as we talked about before, their sword and sandal epics um, and westerns and everything. And so you have like the small budget black and white TV stuff and then you have the big budget you know, stuff in the theaters. And one interesting note about uh, Japanese theaters. So... In the 1940s, the um, the U.S. government basically went to the movie studios and said, well, look, you've got production, distribution, and you own all the theaters, okay? And this makes you really, really powerful, and we're kind of scared of you, so we want you to give up one. So in the end of the, in, I believe it was 48, the studios chose to give up their theaters. They basically said, well, we can make them, and we can distribute them, and then we'll let private owners run the theaters, Okay. I bring this up because this is important. Japan did not have that split. You know, the the Japanese government wasn't really that worried about Japanese theater owners being the same being the same companies that were producing the movies. Um, they did force a little bit of consolidation, but that's esoteric history. We're not going to worry about. Um, the key point. So the key point is this: in the fifties and sixties, you had all these studios that were basically just cranking out like these movies, and they would have to crank out like a couple movies a week. I'm not kidding. A couple of weeks a week because they were they had all these theaters that had 
constant content, right? They needed content to fill these theaters every week. Uh, I've read somewhere that your average theater changed movies every two or three days. Like they switched, they brought out a new movie every two or three days. It's like the production levels are insane. Although I should point out that most of these movies were usually like only 60 to 80 minutes long. They weren't like what we would call features. And they were almost like TV shows. Okay, they were almost more like a, a lo- like an extended television episode. And, and they often did them as uh, series, not serials, but series where they would, you know, they'd make one. And if it was popular, they'd make another. And they'd keep making them until till people stop paying for them. And then they'd stop and they'd make something else, you know, if there was a popular hero. <laughs> and a lot of these movies were based off of popular pulp characters and popular pulp novels of the day. So... What happened is, is that this studio popped up called Toei. Now, many of you have probably, that Toei might sound familiar because Toei is a big name today in animation. But Toei, which is short for uh, Tokyo Ega, in other words, Tokyo Film. Okay, there was a film distribution company. It was formed in 1938. Um, and short version is this is, they realized that there was big money in making all these samurai films. So what Toei did basically is, they they actually went out and they even built a, basically a period samurai village, well, city, basically. They built city sets is what they did. Not unlike what some of the um, Western uh, producers did back in the day. Uh, I don't know which, like you, you've seen pictures of those old, you know, Western sets, you know, where they would shoot the Western, fake Western towns. Well, they, to- Toei basically produced a version of that that was for the making, just making samurai and period dramas on. Because the Japanese love their period dramas, and so they, so they, and they, you, you had all these costumes and everything. And the reason I bring this up is, so Toei basically made themselves like we're the period drama guys. Like there was Daiei and some of their competition, they did that too. But Toei were like they were the ones who built the put invested the money and make the really big period sets and everything, so they could they could produce all these shows. Uh, well, sorry, all these movies. And then when television started to get popular, Toei said, well, hey, we've got all the costumes and sets and everything. Let's just start producing TV, too. And so the reason I, exp- I bring all this up, there is a point, is that almost every show we're going to talk about tonight is actually a Toei production. <laughs> Toei produced or co-produced in many cases almost every show that I'm going to mention tonight. And... This is because they're the ones that had like the big samurai sets and everything, right? They could actually afford to, they could afford to do it. Um, And so they are the big name. And in fact, this pretty much this entire boom that I'm going to be talking about tonight is pretty much a Toei samurai boom that went on. Um, Of course, in the 60s, um, since just to continue on, just a tiny bit more historical background. In the 60s also, of course, there was a manga boom as well. Um, and that, cause that was the age of the Gekiga. What, what's, what, what are Gekiga, Don? Oh, uh, Gekiga are the, uh, the dramatic pictures. Those are the kind of the more, uh, uh, not necessarily what we'd call dark and gritty, mm-hmm. but they're the more kind of, uh, heavy, serious, dramatic kind of stories as opposed to comedies or straight action. Exactly. Yeah. Although they did have a lot of action stuff as well. Um, yeah. For example, uh, there was, uh, and this is this is relevant actually. Um, one very popular gekiga were a series of adaptations of Ian Fleming novels in the late nineteen sixties, mm-hmm. 
and they mid to late 60s because the you know the bond movies were popular in japan just like everywhere else and so this company got the rights to do the bond ones and so they did it and and the bond ones they're they're interesting if you can find them they're inter- they're interesting reads you'd have to you'd have to find them online they're a little stiff but they're by especially by today's manga standards but they're they're interesting reads they had to change things a little bit and they did a couple bond novels and then they kind of lost the rights okay and so these two guys um one is Kazuo Koke and the other is Takao Sato Takao Saito sorry the other is Takao Saito uh, created a James Bond surrogate character that would later be known as Gogo Thirteen, the professional, who who became who who um, un, up until uh, Takao Saito's recent death, they were still publishing new Gogo Thirteen comics. Okay, he's yeah. he's one of the original, and he was basically replaced because they lost the I believe they lost the rights to James Bond. Okay. Now, what does Bond have to do with all this? Why do I mention this? Well, the important person there is not Takao Saito. It's his writing partner because Saito was actually originally was the artist on it. Well, he was was the co-creator. It was his partner, Kazuo Koike. Why is Kazuo Koike important, Don? Because if you want to look at the uh, late 60s, early 70s, gritty, serious samurai comics... Him and Hirata Hiroshi are basically the guys that created almost literally everything. Pretty much, yes. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and of course, Kazuo Koike is most famous for what most of you would probably have heard of as Lone Wolf and Cub. That is his like great epic that's still uh, that's still popular to this day, and which has been referenced many times in uh, in the show. In fact, even. Um, and is and since uh, the Mandalorian came out, has been referenced a whole lot of times in popular culture. Um, and what did the other guy do, Don? <laughs> uh, which one, uh, Hirata Hiroshi? Yes, yes. Oh, he did. He did a bunch. He did like tons of like shorter ones. You'd recognize his art because uh, the 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 guys who uh, Koike did uh, when they did like say Lone Wolf and Cub and a bunch of other ones, they used kind of the Sumi A style art. Right. Which is, it comes out of the traditional Japanese ink painting. Right. Whereas uh, Hiroshi did the, um, he did something that looks like a cross between that and the straight up manga style. If you've ever seen a Japanese comic where a bunch of fully armed samurai, and, and there'll be like 40 of them, are all charging into battle on horseback, and every single detail of, of everything is drawn in it. That is probably a, a Hirata Hiroshi picture. Oh, okay. Yeah, him I'm actually not that familiar with. Okay, thank you. I, I, he's you, what, Sorry? Hmm? I was going to say, you are, but you don't know it. Because, again, he did a bunch of different stories, and you would have come across them. But I'm sure I have, yeah. Uh, none, none of his really, like, once the, uh, once the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub hit... Mm. That kind of became the samurai comic, and everybody wanted to do Lone Wolf and Cub, and everything looked like Lone Wolf and Cub. And it was written, because Lone Wolf and Cub is, is uh, mm-hmm. it's a kind of a combination history lesson. Yes. And super, super heavy soap opera. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad way to describe it. And uh, we'll be talking about the Lone Wolf and Cub uh, television series a little later on. Um, oh, but, it, it might come up. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it will definitely come up. There's no question on that. But... 
part maybe because of partly because of uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, and partly because of maybe you know what was going on in manga, and and also I think partly as a almost echo, uh, I would say of the of the of the pulps. You could, and I think that's actually a good way to put it. Um, the seventies and eighties in Japan would end up being basically the era of Jedi, Geki, you know, samurai dramas. They, it would basically be the era of the action samurai story is the, uh, is the seventies and eighties in Japan. Um, I think, hmm? oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think there's two other things. Oh yeah. Why it happens at that time specifically. Okay. What are they? It's, it's on one hand, remember that's where, um, economically japan was ascendant yes yes it was yeah that's true yeah so they're feeling their oats so that great tradition in their history was something that people could feel proud of again and there was enough distance from world war ii that people weren't freaked out by this kind of return to militarism and Mm. you know the classic days of glory because world war ii uh those traditions were used to kind of, I don't want to say brainwash, but we'll say um, brainwash the young troops into joining the army and dying valiantly for the cause, yep. like their their great ancestors historically would have done to forge this great country kind of thing. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. And I'm sure I haven't, I haven't read those specifically, but I'm betting even like if I go hunting, I'll probably be able to find a bunch of samurai movies from the 40s and that that are, and maybe late 30s, that are absolutely that, that are basically just pure on propaganda, that are, that are, <laughs> that are uh, all about that. Um, it also should be noted that, oh yeah, by the way, speaking of samurai films and such, if you're a Kurosawa fan, it's like the fifties and sixties, that's when Kurosawa was doing all these, all this stuff. And so you had all these directors, all these producers, all this content that was being done in the fifties and sixties. And then kind of the new generation came in with the seventies and eighties and they kind of said, well, okay, we're, we now have Japan's ascendant. We have new television technology. We've got color TV. We want to do something. We want to kind of do something like the stuff that we loved when we were kids, basically. Mm-hmm. And also, you've got a kind of handover period as well. A lot of the directors in the seventies and eighties for the television stuff, they were actually the directors from the sixties that were producing like a movie a week in, in, the, <laughs> in the in the in the basically the the grind. So yeah. So this that's why one of the things I found really interesting is is that especially some of the better. Jidaigeki samurai dramas that I'm going to talk about, some of them are shot incredibly beautiful. They're shot like films. They're not, mm-hmm. like, even though they've got very limited budget, very limited set, you see a lot of stuff that's very, that's shot very well. And I think actually even you kind of mentioned that a long time ago, something similar, if you watched, like, the early Ultraman stuff as well, to go take a complete sidestep in the 60s and the 70s and such, a lot of those series will have these episodes that are just beautifully like structured and shot and everything like that. And that's usually because that's what they are. They're these like experienced directors that are basically, you want to, you want to shoot some Ultraman. Okay, sure. And so that, that's what they do. And uh, the yeah. same thing's happening here with all these, with all these uh, Jida Geki dramas. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think another thing too, that you're, yeah, you're kind of hitting at. Mm-hmm. Is when when they moved to television because of the uh, I was gonna say Zaibatsu, I meant Keretsu. <laughs> it's a poli- political joke. Yes. But a lot of the TV shows were produced by the same companies that produced the um, like produced movies often at the same time. Yes. And they swap people out, whereas yep. in the states, 
you had little bits of that, but if a movie studio, like say in the fifties, would set up a separate department for TV, mm-hmm. and they would be semi independent of each other, whereas in Japan it was often literally like uh, Toei's movie department and Toei's TV department would just swap people out, and that's why you'll see like say the same actors in a big budget movie and then a low budget TV comedy you know next week kind of thing yeah yeah a lot of that happened some of that was going on in hollywood though like in the 60s and that like for example if you watch um anything done by uh, desilu studios uh that would be mm-hmm. mission impossible uh and a certain show called star trek and what did they also did manix they did one or a couple other things that and you'll see the same supporting actors and a lot of the same directors and a lot of people are working on all of them um yeah Again, that's but that's all TV, right? They're not doing movies, but but they're often using some of the same, say, Paramount or wherever sets that the movies are using, right? They've got the street sets and everything. Um, yeah, because they're 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 technically they'd be the same company, but they'd come about backwards. So Desilu Studios produced a lot of TV, mm-hmm. and that was uh, that was uh, Desert was Desarnez and Lucille Ball. Yes, it was. Yeah. That was their production company that they started up to do their TV show. Yeah. But they were part of Paramount Studios, which yes. was the movie company. But they operated independent because it was, they started as a separate, it's kind of like if you think motorcycle gangs, when you repatch over to a bigger gang. Mm, okay. That, that that was kind of kind of how it worked uh, for, for American television at the time that, the uh the companies that produce TV the big studios would kind of um kind of uh buy them up mm-hmm. and there'd be some back and forth but again because the production TV production companies were mostly independent you didn't get as much crossover as you did in Japan where it would just literally be Toei saying let's do TV now and then maybe some radio as well well yeah yeah they did all of that stuff that's very true. Um, be, be, I th- because they were allowed. Yeah, they were allowed. I think you also weren't allowed this, to do that here. Yeah, I was going to say here. If I remember right, there's actually another reason too, which is that the the government was again worried that the movie studios and that had too much power, so they were limiting the amount of television shows that they could produce. Um, like the networks were only allowed to show so much network TV, so they had to buy from outside. And so there were all these like little legal things, hoops that they had to jump through and such. So the studios were creating TV departments to sell sell specifically television to the networks and the networks would sell it to their own affiliates. And it was it was just like this whole mess, basically created by American laws. Yeah, well, because it was that anti-monopoly thing, that same idea that if I had a TV network in your area, I couldn't own a newspaper in that area kind of because they... Because like you say, they didn't want just one or two big companies controlling everything everybody sees. And we see how well that turned out. Whereas in Japan, again, the idea of the Karetsu, the uh, the friendly family of related companies, Mm -hmm. they could totally do that. And 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 they totally did. Yep. Oh hell, oh hell yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, uh, they absolutely did. They owned. They owned. So yeah, we you'd get these media monsters basically, and, and Toei is one of them. Toei, Toei is. I don't know yeah. exactly which Kiretsu it's connected with, but it's yeah, it's it's absolutely one of them. Anyway, so 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 basically, yeah. So Toei basically produced almost everything that we're going to talk about. There were other companies that were actually producing them, but 
ironically enough, and maybe just because of the budgets and they had the budgets, they had the sets, they had the costumes, they had the actors, etc. The vast majority of stuff we're going to talk about is Toei because they just produce the best stuff. Yeah. And they could also produce the longest too. All right. So I think that that take, that takes most of the background. The audience is probably wondering, okay, so when are you going to get to the actual shows and start talking about them? <laughs> so I think we should probably uh, get around to doing that. Is there anything else you think we should cover, Don, before we actually start talking about that? No, I think I think you got everything. That there, there might be the odd little thing that comes up, but that I right. think so, you set the stage. Okay, so. there we go. Thank, thanks. The things to remember then are that most of these stories are set during the Edo period, when there's like Japan's like you know a little bit of of uh, this chaotic police state basically, and <laughs> that uh, that Japan at this point. You know, going into the 70s and 80s, you've got the new generation of young directors coming in. You've got the old generation. They're kind of crossing over, kind of like the 60s were in America in a lot of ways in their television and movies. And you so and there's this big hunger at this point because Japan's ascendant for like cool samurai dramas and such. Um, and by the way, I do want to add, the reason I mentioned the pulps earlier and, and manga as well is that a large number of these dramas are actually based on pulp heroes. Okay, a lot, a lot of them, and including the first one we'll talk about in a second. But before we do, one, one, one more thing. Um, I generally divide uh, the, sh- the shows into three categories. There's generally three categories of these shows, and then a couple little sub subgroupings. The first show, the first one is procedurals. The second one is wandering warriors, and the third one is epics. And these are the these are the three broad categories I came up with to put put these shows into, and I'll explain. Uh, what each one and and how they work, etc. All right, um, but 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 all of them are basically um, they all have a lot in common. They all basically are they all follow very similar patterns, very similar formulas, and they're hmm. all we'll talk about those as we go along. And they're all basically shows that you know they're ultimately about samurai, ronin, or other pe- pe- good noble people living during the Edo period who are just fighting the good fight against um, the uh, the ne- negative forces of society, pretty much, you could say, in one form or another. <laughs> uh, there's an actual uh, category of these things called Kenzen Choaku, which loosely translates to rewarding good and punishing evil. Hmm. Okay. And, oh, and the other thing I should mention is every single one of these shows ends in a fight. Every episode. <laughs> um Every episode. That's when there are different kinds of fights, but they always end in a fight. Yeah, that because that's kind of that's what the climax of this show is of all these shows is. It's always a fight, one kind or another, sort of. Okay. Anyway, so let's talk about procedurals <laughs> first. Don, what's a procedural? Like, if we're talking about an American procedural, what are we talking about here? Best example for the uh, an American one because I think this will come up would be like a cop show. It's like your your standard pot boiler with the standard characters that. Mm-hmm. the they tend to be plot heavy yes and it's it's all about you know resolving the issues like cop shows it's always about how they investigate and track down the bad guy yep and then either bring them in or if it's like a 1960s or early 70s one finish them off in a hail of gunfire <laughs> yep and uh, the Japanese samurai procedurals, which I'm going to call the Chidageki procedurals, are following, you have to understand, they're following the American formula because they've seen the American shows. And they're like, hey, we can do that, but we're going to do it as a, as you said, in period. We're not going to set it in modern Japan. They had those too, by the way. They did actually have them. But they, but some of them, but just for something different, they did them. And 
the very first type of procedure we're going to talk about is basically, I call for them as on the beat or basically samurai police procedurals. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the very great grandfather of samurai police procedurals is a, a show or a series called Zenigata Heiji. Okay. Zenigata Heiji actually comes from a pulp, uh, pulp magazine serial as well about, about this character. And essentially, he is just a badass beat cop. That's what he is. He's a badass beat cop in, you know, old Edo. Um, he wanders around with a, I believe it's called jute, stuck in his hand. You've seen jute? They basically look like a, they look like a metal rod. And then they have this extra little bit that kind of looks like a guard that comes out of the one side and kind of sticks up. And these jute were basically used because, the reason they had, they're actually anti-sword weapons. That's why there's that little bit that sticks up. It's actually meant to catch a sword and kind of and rest it out of the the sword guy's hands. Um, but Zenigata Heiji is like one of the most famous detective police characters in Japanese culture. Ever, they all know who he is. And again, it ran for and I'm not kidding about this 888 episodes, starting in 1966, and. Every episode is basically exactly what you'd expect. You know, there's there's a crime going. Heiji gets we're into a crime, and he basically begins to investigate it. He's it's they're they're mysteries basically. They're these these kind of quasi they're detective stories. Um, and at the end of every episode, he'll eventually find who the bad guy is. The bad guy will usually be doing something like threatening the innocents, whoever whoever you know is being beaten on in this episode, whoever the downtrodden are. And Heiji is famous for he has this. It's a I think it's not a one yen coin. It's a couple yen coin. He's got a famous coin and he basically can whip that thing and like with a, with like the power of a bullet pretty much. <laughs> and so the, ba- so the bad guy will be about to strike down the innocent woman. And suddenly this coin will hit his hand and break his wrist and his, ah, and that sword will get knocked out of the bad guy's hand. And Heiji will come in and, oh, I'm here to arrest you bastard. I finally caught you. And there'll be a big fight with the bad guys, henchmen and such. And, Heiji and his buddies will kick butt and the episode will be over. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, it, it. It's a good choice because they are literally a cop procedural set in you know, like in, in Tokugawa, Japan, except yep. instead of a hail of gunfire, the bad guy dies in a hail of small change. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's great. Um, so, and that's, and Zenigata Heiji is, yeah, that's, that's the on the beat. Um, two other worth mentioning, um, of the on the beat, yo samurai cop dramas, um, is there's the Falcons of Edo and, uh, Kirisute Gomen. There are actually two others that are worth mentioning. Both of them are very similar to each other. Um, the Falcons of Edo is basically what happens is, is that for whatever weird reason, Falconers of the, the Shogunate's Falconers basically are given license to basically begin investigating and act as agents of the Shogun. So every episode they do the investigation police thing, and then at some point near the end, instead of throwing coins, the Falcons <laughs> will attack the bad guy and usually knock stuff out of their hands or whatever. <laughs> they're cops, bird cops, and there's like four of them. About four falcons, I think, and four falconers. The falconers are the ones actually doing everything. Um, the Falcons of Edo is important or noteworthy because it's actually production by the production company and starring Toshiro Mifune, who is uh, hmm. most known as one of the lead characters in the Seven Samurai. He was kind of the wild younger samurai, 
And during the 1970s, he created his own production company to start producing samurai dramas because they were popular. And he thought, hey, I'm like the most famous samurai guy around. Why, sh why shouldn't I? And so he did a couple uh, Ronin series where he literally plays basically this wandering Ronin character. He, he, he's basically, in, in The Seven Samurai, he's like this wild character. But in these series, he's, he's older. He's very mm, stately. He's kind of like a chiseled stone face, basically, who just kind of goes around and kicks butt and does things. And he's the boss in The Falcons of Edo. Um, he, he did a bunch of American films too as i recall like during that eight. period yeah he did a couple of them yeah like uh was it was it, it's not red sun is it what's it called the western the samurai western the original one not uh not the stupid oh. one jackie chan there's actually <laughs> one that, there's one that he did and it's something sun if i remember right it's, okay, it's a samurai western anyway uh while you're looking that up so yeah the falcons of edo um and then there's another series called uh kirisute gomen um which literally would translate into English as License to Kill. And that's another, it's a pure samurai cop drama. Um, what it basically is, is is that I believe it's Guardhouse 34 in Tokyo. Basically this samurai, and he's actually a samurai, not a ronin, basically gets assigned to work at this guardhouse in Edo period. Now, okay, I should explain what Kurosite Gomen, this License to Kill stuff means. So the samurai basically had the right to kill commoners if they pissed them off. In, in, in theory, they could kill anyone who was of lower social status than they were. And that was called the Kirisute Gomen. That was their uh, that was their license to kill, literally. Now, mind you, if they did it, and this is real, this is something that really existed, um, they could do it, but they had to pay compensation to the victim's families if they did. Mm -hmm. This was kind of the shogunate's way of saying, yeah, please don't do that too much, okay, guys? <laughs> um, but they did still have the right license to do it. Um, so... Well, basically, one of these samurai who is like connected to connected to the shogunate basically goes moves into this guardhouse, which is in this kind of rough part of Tokyo. And unsurprisingly, um, when he uh, you know at the end of every episode, the when they find out who the bad guys are, or what they've been doing, whether the bad guys are you know sometimes they're lords or merchants or gangsters or whatever, they basically he kills them. You know that's he has because regular cops aren't supposed to kill anyone. That's the deal, right? So it's kind of like, you know, if James Bond became a police officer, but of course he's still got his license to kill. The other cops are, are shooting to wound or avoid. Bond is just like, bang, 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 bang. Okay, problem solved. Um, and so that's Kirisei Gomen. It ran in 1980 for about three seasons. And uh, that's, yeah, that, it, it's another interesting one. Um, if you get the chance, it, it could be worth watching. Again, if you like this kind of samurai cop drama, unfortunately, Zenigata Heiji, um, you won't, you there there's only a handful of episodes with english subtitles that exist i should ex i should note that um even those 888 episodes in japanese in english there's only like three or four at least that i've been able to find anyway that exist um the falcons of edo there's a full season of it which is only, there's only one season and curious they go in all three seasons are available on the internet subbed in English. You can find them. We'll talk more about where to watch this stuff at the end of the episode. And there's a little teaser if you want to see some of it. Um, and, and I've watched pretty much all of it, by the way. Uh, or at least a couple episodes of, <laughs> uh, a couple episodes of everything. Yeah, because mm -hmm. a, a lot of them, what ended up happening mm -hmm. is the these popular shows would end up getting turned into, say, like um, a couple episodes to get turned into a movie that would get like a cheap-ass dub and shown here. And Red Sun is the movie you're thinking of. It also has uh, Charles Bronson in it. Yes. Yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. 
Oh, actually, that's not, that's not just that, Don. Actually, what happened with so if these shows were popular, they Toei being Toei, they had theaters to fill. So what they would do mm. is they would film an extra episode that was usually extra long and had a little more budget, and they would and they would do this maybe once a year for these series and call it a movie. So many yeah. of these shows actually have actual not TV episodes but actual movies to go along with, but that are really just extended episodes with slightly higher budgets. They're, they're, yeah. Those are very common. Yeah, they did that too in the sixties and the seventies with a lot of the uh, the animated TV shows. Yes, yes, they did. Yeah, they those they would often take they would do that sometimes or sometimes they would that's why there's like 50 Doramon movies um, <laughs> but they would also sometimes as you said take episodes of the show and turn it into a quote-unquote movie for to fill theater time etc uh, yeah. as well so yeah so that's the ja- samurai cop shows um, next in our procedural list there's actually three types of procedurals is what I refer to as the samurai surprise shows all right and another one of the in fact, actually, the longest running, 42 at 42 seasons, the <laughs> longest running samurai TV show that ran from 1969 to 2011 is one called Mido Komon. Okay? Think about this. 42 seasons. <laughs> Mido Komon ran. Um, and Mido Komon is kind of the original of this type of show. And this is why I call it the Samurai Surprise. So here's how this show kind of show works. They're procedurals. They're procedurals like everything else, okay? Like, like just like the cop ones. Except that, well, I'll, here, I'll explain Mido Komon and it'll, it'll make a little more sense. I'll just tell you what the standard formula for Mido Komon is. So Mido Komon is actually one of the samurai, uh, one of the shogun's brothers. He's actually, uh, I think he's like seventh from the throne or something. He's a real person, by the way, who actually existed. Uh, that was, this is a fictionalized version of it. And basically, to kind of keep him from causing too much trouble, or maybe because he was so annoying around the, you know, the palace or whatever, the shogun basically said, yeah, I want you to go out and become an inspector and go out and wander the land. So what Motokomon does is he looks like an old guy. In fact, I think he actually is an older fellow. He's like at least middle-aged anyway. And He, he would be by the end. It will definitely is by the end. Well, there's a catch to that, and I'll explain it in a second. So Mido, so Mido basically, he dresses, him, dresses up as a merchant, and goes wandering around the Japanese countryside, and he has a bunch of assistants with him, okay? And what happens is, is that every episode, they kind of wander into a place, and they'll discover that, you know, something nefarious is going on. You know, the local gangsters are up to something, or, you know, the local the local bosses are corrupt, or whatever, anyway. And so he basically, they investigate, find out what's really going on, and then at the end of every episode, Mido basically suddenly whips out his uh, samurai you know, shogunate badge and basically says, I'm the, sem- I'm the shogun's representative. You're all screwed. And basically you're all under arrest. And then and usually before or after his assistants, who include uh, usually a ninja, a couple samurai, one or t- you know, quick, quick change artists, things like that. He's, his assistants change over the years. Um his assistants basically beat the crap out of these people. Uh, beat the crap out of the bad guys. And at the end of the episode, everything returns to happiness because they, you know, justice is restored. And then Mido continues on his wandering for, to the next of his more than a hundred, more than a thousand uh, destinations. And so <laughs> Mido, and with Mido Komon, because it ran so long, what they did is they they would just swap characters out. There were actually even multiple Mido Komons as in actors playing him. They kind of just kept pretending. It's kind of one of those weird Detective Conan things where they just kept pretending that time wasn't really passing. It's just kind of eternal. (laughs) 
And so they just kept telling stories. Now, you know, he meet, met people he met and went places he went, but that's how they kept it fresh. And they kept swapping out his assistants. And that's, it's, Mido Komon, it's almost like if Doctor Who was still the original Doctor Who and they just kept switching <laughs> actors in, and but he, they were always supposed to be the first Doctor. Is that, it's, is, is that makes any sense as an analogy? Um, anyway, or James Bond, you know, was always, or they never didn't try to, well, yeah, James Bond, you know, was, has been played by many actors are all theoretically supposed to be the same guy. The same with Mito Komon. Okay. That's how they kept it going. And right. that's super popular. And you'll see references to Mito Komon everywhere in, in anime and Japanese pop culture, etc. And, um, the next one is actually, and this is another, uh, samurai surprise, um, show is actually probably one of my favorites that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, is Aberenbo Shogun or the Unfettered Shogun, um, which is probably my favorite on the list. It ran 831 episodes starting <laughs> in 1978. Um, the premise is this, actually. The main character is, I believe he's the seventh Tokugawa Shogun. Sixth or seventh Tokugawa Shogun. Tokugawa, uh, it's not Iemitsu. I'd have to look him up. But anyway, so the key point is Roshiman. this. Hmm? Yoshimune the eighth. Oh, he's the eighth. Sorry, he's Yoshimune the eighth. Sorry, thanks for reminding me. Okay, so the idea is this: is that the seventh shogun basically retires, and the eighth shogun, who is this like who's been living out in the countryside and is basically you know the who's this rough, tough like samurai fighter and everything, um, goes into he basically gets hired to be the the eighth shogun. He goes in, he goes into the his castle in Edo, and very quickly gets really bored. Okay. And so what he decides is, is that I'm really bored. I'm going to go wandering. So he goes out. So, so what happens is every episode, he, with his two ninja assistants, they sneak out of the castle through the, through this back gate on a boat and they go wandering around Tokyo. He's got a bunch of friends in Tokyo who know, who actually know who he's the Shogun. And he basically pretends he, he's called Shinsan. Uh, they just know him as, as a, uh, a lowly, you know, third son of, uh, you know, an unimportant uh, Tozama Daimyo. He's not really that important. He's basically like this playboy character. And he wanders around and he, of course, encounters bad guys up to no good. And then <laughs> he, um, he investigates it. And then at the end of the episode, he usually, at the end of the episode, he confronts them. Sometimes he reveals that he's the Shogun, sometimes not. He's famous for actually flipping his sword right before he fights. Because what he does is his sword has a sharp edge and a blunt edge, and he only uses the blunt edge. Because these people are not worth spill him spilling their blood. That's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the insult of the whole thing. And he usually beats up like the main guy and usually like a dozen henchmen. His ninja partners help. And then justice is restored. Um, occasionally he, uh, occasionally he'll invite them to the castle if they're like high ranking and then it'll be revealed that, that, Hey, by the way, that guy you were taught, you were fighting with, that's me. That's the Shogun. Kill yourself. And (laughs) and so, and they commit, and they commit ritual. He forces them to commit ritual suicide. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That's how happy it is. Like, um, yeah. And so, and if he, hmm? oh, sorry. I was, was going to say, if he forces them, is it still technically suicide? <laughs> well, this is the thing about living, going back to that whole police state comment, right? Mm. Um, in, in Japan, if you're, you know, it's it, it's a police state. You know, he, it's their their options are either they commit suicide or he, he kills their entire family. Those are basically the two <laughs> options, right? So, so in the end, they 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 commit suicide. Um, this was a suicide. He cut his own head off. <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty much. That's exactly right. Um, 
And now it sounds really grim, but actually the actor who plays uh, Yoshimune in, in Abrenbo Shogun is incredibly charming. Like he is just like the most charming, one of the most charming Japanese actors you've ever seen. And so oh he God. manages to keep things really light and happy. Um, and that like, makes it worse. <laughs> no, it's, it sounds it sounds so bad, but it's if you actually watch it. And the funny thing is, I refer to it as Samurai Reverse Batman. Because <laughs> um, and because that's basically what it is. Imagine if like Batman, except it's Reverse Batman, right? He as he's a Batman is his official title, but he's stuck in the Batcave, <laughs> so he goes out every episode with his two assistants, uh, Robin and Batgirl. That's who basically that's who the two ninja assistants are. He except he pretends to be Bruce Wayne instead. You know that's what I say. He's Samurai <laughs> Reverse Batman, and he investigates the he investigates the crime. There's a um, Commissioner Gordon character who knows who he is, and there's even an Alfred character. Like if you watch, you're gonna go. Like I when I was in living in Japan in '97, I came across episodes of this show. I was actually watching it in pure Japanese. It a it's you I could follow it even even though my Japanese was terrible. I still knew what was going on because I figured out the pattern pretty quickly. And B the first thing I thought was, my God, it's Samurai Batman. Because that's what it is. He literally, he has this bat boat that he sneaks out of this bat castle <laughs> gates and everything. And you'd have to see it. And in fact, you can because, again, there are episodes available in English. And in fact, this show was aired in by Kiku TV in Hawaii, which is a Japanese multicultural station in Hawaii with English subtitles. It is arguably their first or second most popular series of all time on Kiku TV. It is their most requested series of all time. And in fact, wow. the... It's, uh, was it the University of Hawaii, their football team, they use the Abrenbo Shogun theme as their football team song. And, and then the other team forfeits? Like, this is, <laughs> this, is, this is so, I gotta see this show. This is just sounds crazy. It is. And actually, and even better, every episode they weaved in actual things that he, that the real Yoshimune did to like real kind of historical lessons. Every episode is connected to something that, that the real guy did, like laws that he brought in and with kind of the backstory of why he brought in this law. It's usually because some like uh Daimyo or some lord was being a prick, basically. That's usually that's the number one reason, but whatever. Um hmm. so Aberinbo Shogun, it is awesome. Like once you watch it, it is super addictive. <laughs> Unfortunately, not all eight hundred and thirty-one episodes are available with English subtitles, but there's uh, about the first 80 or so of the first season uh, series, I should say series, because they're not seasons, they're actually series. And then they did, then there's various other episodes that are available. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes so you can go check this out. Because it is, it's both crazy and awesome at the same time. <laughs> of all the lists, this is, that's one of my top three that I recommend watching, Aberinbo Shogun. I can't say enough good things about it. Another show that I saw while I was actually living in Japan is the third one for the Surprise Samurai series, which is Toyama no Kinsan, also known as Magistrate Kinsan. And it's very similar to uh, Abrenbo Shogun. Well, what, what is it? So this guy, uh, who is, I believe it's based off a real, again, a real person. And the short version is this, is that he's like this country samurai lord who basically gets assigned to become a magistrate in Tokyo. And one of the area, one of the sections of Tokyo, Tokyo has twenty, I think it's twenty three sections. Yes, twenty three wards, and he becomes this ward captain. But the thing is, instead of actually doing his job exactly most of the time, what he does is he basically dresses up as a civilian 
and wanders around just kind of like poking and being because no because this is the thing like Abernbo Shogun works because no one knows what the what the Shogun looks like right nobody's allowed to see him so no mm -hmm. one in the Commonwealth in fact even most of the lords don't know what he actually looks like he actually meets them in front in uh, Toyama no Kinsan it's a little stretchy and a little bit but it's kind of the same thing right he's the samurai lord who basically wanders around and um, every episode he finds bad guys who are up to no good. And then at the end of the episode, he's got this like cherry blossom tattoo over his one shoulder. This is what he's famous for. He basically rips off his, um, he confronts the bad guys. He rips off his, his kimono or that kind of pulls it down on the one side so they can see the cherry blossoms and basically tells them there, he actually has a catchphrase. Oh, what's his catchphrase? I actually have it here somewhere. Um, oh, Kono Sakura Fubi o Miso Miwasareta To Iwasezo. I won't let you forget this cherry blossom blizzard. Okay? And he beats the crap out of them. Okay? And so he does that, he beats the crap out of them, okay? But he's still doing it in his civilian identity. Okay? Then they get hauled off to jail. And they basically try to protest. And when they look up, because they're not usually allowed to look up, they discover he's their judge. <laughs> and that's why he says, I won't let you forget this cherry blossom blizzard. Hey, remember this? And they're all like, oh, because usually they pr pretend they're innocent or whatever. And then they realize how screwed they are. And then he either exiles them from Edo or sentences them to death. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of how it works. So that's, so that's Tozama, Toyama no Kinsan. I, again, I, it, again, so formula, like if you understand how a cop procedural show works, you don't even have to speak Japanese to watch these. Like once you go, mm -hmm. once you understand what's going on, if you watch regular procedurals, it's pretty obvious. Good guys, bad guys. Okay. Yeah. You watch the thing. All right. So, um, there's one more type of procedurals. I just want to mention, I don't want this, this could go on for a while, so I don't want this to take too long to it. That's Toyama no Kinsen, also a lot of fun. All right, uh, there's two more types that I thought are worth mentioning, uh, which I call the Hidden Heroes procedurals. Um, the My personal favorite out of this set is the Kage no Gundan, or Shadow Warriors series. It's a, the first mm. series, the first season was released in English as Shadow Warriors. Um, but Kage no Gundan would translate more to like Shadow Squad or something like that. It's basically, it's about ninjas, ninjas living in Tokyo and, and doing their, they're hidden, of course, people don't, the people around them don't know that they're ninja. And they basically, every episode, they discover like people that are up to no good. And they basically, at the end, they go and they, you know, sneak in there and they kill them. That's, that's pretty much it. They, they have a sword fight with them and they kill them. That's how it pretty much works. Um, again... They pretend they're running. Uh, what's interesting about Kage no Gundan, two things. One, it stars uh, Sunny Chiba, who is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, who, you're going to hear his name again later on. Uh, Chiba passed away last year, unfortunately, from COVID-19. Um, if you've seen Kill Bill, he played a character called Hitori Hanzo, who who uh, made the bride's sword. When she went to went to Japan, she goes to this uh, sushi guy and she asks him to make him a sword. And it's like, I to kill really big bugs. And rats are really big rats, if I remember right. And that's Sunny Chiba. He's actually kind of the Japanese. I describe him as the Japanese William Shatner, except yeah, he's he, his acting style is a lot like Shatner. He's very over the top, very bombastic. Except he's like Shatner if Shatner had the skills of uh, Jackie Chan, because he really does have the skills. He actually founded the uh, Japan Action Club, which is a you can look it up. I'll put things in the show notes, but is basically or was Japan's uh, premier uh, stunt 
team and stunt stunt group basically that did all like the Toei stunts for period non period and all this stuff like that. And uh, Chiba's in tons of stuff. He himself is the real deal. He can he can he can fight. He's also in a famous uh, my favorite movie by him movie it would be the Street Fighter. Um, mm. And he did a couple Street Fighter movies as well. And in this one, he's the leader of the uh, the Shadow Squad or the you know the Shadow Warriors. One interesting note about Kagunon Gundam: each season of it is set during a different era, and he's supposed to be Hitori Hanzo, but he's a different generation Hitori Hanzo. Basically, he's like Hitori Hanzo Junior, then Hitori Hanzo Junior Junior, and then and each each of them is set during a different time of the Edo period. So the, the first season is start right at the beginning. And then by the end, it's not even in the Edo period. It's actually like, I think it's in the Meiji period is the final one. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's black adder kind of. Yeah. Except it's action and ninjas instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, he, they, they kind of do the black adder thing to try to keep it fresh. I find myself, I like the first season. I'm not a huge fan of the other seasons. They're okay, but again, they're really repetitive. It really is a procedural and they're kind of, there's kind of repetitive, but they're not, but if you like, you know, you like ninja action stuff, it's, it can be, it's a lot of fun. Um, you just have to get you used to the weird music because they keep mm. playing when they go off to fight. They usually play these weird downbeat love songs. Like the points, <laughs> the points when you'd expect them to be like this high action music, like they're going out to kick butt. It's like, no, no, they're going to play. The, you'd, you'd have to hear it, actually. But th- they play these weird love songs at the most inopportune times. Like, ugh, it's, yeah, so, it's so weird. Um, this is from 1980, well, they, by the way. Um, yeah, because the, the one season they did that because it was the um, the the rival clan sends the woman to infiltrate mm-hmm. and. Oh, I forget what season that was. And I thought it was great because basically all of our heroes right away realize, oh, look, she's an enemy ninja. And they keep telling her that like every episode. No, you're a ninja. You're supposed to kill us, blah, blah, whatever. And then they ignore her. And I think she ends up falling for like the hero halfway through the season. Yep, yep, yep. That's that's about right. Yeah, yep. I don't remember which season that was, but that sounds, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it's been a while yeah. for that one. Um, yeah, Kage no Gundan they actually did release in English, which is why I th- which is why I think Don's Don's got the well, you've got the ones I I gave you I think a, a couple years back. Yeah, yeah. And but there there are, are official English DVDs. I think it's out of print, but you can find them on uh, if you go on Amazon or eBay, you can still find them. Um, so they're pretty good. Another one, oddly enough, also starring Sunny Chiba is Tokugawa Buraicho, and I which I thought was mentioning worth mentioning. It's worth most worth mentioning for its context. So. So here's the thing. In Tokyo, during the Edo, Edo period, they created this area called Yoshiwara. Okay? And Yoshiwara is basically this one area. It's a couple of like square blocks. And if I remember, it's got moats around it. It's almost like this little island thing that's supposed to be... It's the red light district. It's the pleasure area of Tokyo. Of Edo, sorry. And the key is that for whatever weird reason, I don't know the actual reason for this, it, but... This apparently area was considered off limits. It was actually considered like its own territory, almost like, a, almost like its own province in its own weird way. For example, the police and the government was not allowed in there. They actually couldn't go in. It was actually considered like this own. It was basically run by merchants and mobsters, basically. Or to be more precise, it was Las Vegas. You know, the, yeah. the Japanese basically had their own little Las Vegas next to Edo. And that's, and every, and I'm not kidding about it. It literally is a case of what happens in, you know, Yoshiwara stays in Yoshiwara and people would, you know, guys would have 
you know, would have, uh, you know, lovers in Yoshiwara and they would stay there and literally they couldn't leave because they were usually indentured prostitute servants. Um, and they would go visit the courtesans and the geisha and everything that lived in Yoshiwara. And then they would go back to their families. And that was, that was kind of how it, it mostly served the merchant class and the, and the daimyo who had to go and spend time in Edo, which we didn't talk about, but that's not, not important for this conversation. Um, mm. And so, yeah, so you had just Yoshiwara. And the deal with uh, Tokugawa Baraicho is basically these two guys, one played by Sanichiba, who's actually an exiled member of the Tokugawa family, and another samurai warrior guy, basically team up with this hidden team of ninjas that are living in the Yoshiwara, and they're all exiled there, and they kind of become the cops of the Yoshiwara district. Again, it would be kind of like if Las Vegas police from outside Las Vegas weren't allowed in and there could be no official police in Las Vegas. So the, so the casinos of Vegas hired private police to basically take care of the problems inside Vegas. That's kind of what it would be like. And that's basically Tokugawa Baraicho. And every episode, they basically solve mysteries and figure things out that are happening in the Oshawara and sometimes sneak outside where they are wanted. So they have to kind of really sneak outside because if they're caught outside, they'll be executed. Yeah. And that's Tokugawa Baraicho. It was done in 92. It's probably, it's the latest of the, you know, samurai shows I'm going to mention. It's a little odd and it's not that good, but I thought it was worth mentioning for context. And cause it's, a, it's, it's, it's weird. Um, yeah, you can, again, uh, you can check it out if you want to. So, yeah, so that's the procedurals. Um, any, any thoughts, Don, before we move on to the Wandering Warriors? Yeah, there's another weird thing that mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that kind of comes up with uh, Kage no Gundan. Mm-hmm. That one of the things that you also see from this time in Japan is they also did a lot of ninja dramas. Yes, they did, yeah. But, but they ended up basically being exactly the same as the samurai dramas, except they'd call you a ninja and your sword would be a little smaller. Well, yeah, you also dressed in black. Even though, even if it wasn't appropriate, now this is the thing, we make fun of, uh, you know, ninjas, but truth is, in reality, ninjas very rarely actually wore those black outfits. That was actually mm-hmm. something like really rare, but it things like Kage no Gundan, as soon as it's time for them to go off into battle, they all put on their black outfits and off they go, even if it's the <laughs> middle of the day. They could be fighting in a sunny field in the middle of the day and they're all wearing their black ninja outfits. Yeah, it's like a Sentai show where everybody is the Black Ranger. <laughs> that's exactly how it is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. No, no, that's exactly how Kage... And Kage no Gundan is probably the ninja show of this period. Like, it's it's literally the... It's like, it's the the ninja show that everyone was watching, or one of them anyway. Um, and, yeah, yeah it, 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 was, it was pretty popular um, in its yeah. time. Any other thoughts about procedurals before I move on? Uh... No, I think I think you you covered them. I gotta see that one where where they they t- I thought convinces everybody to kill themselves. I, I gotta see that one. That don't worry, don't fantastic. worry. I'll set you and our audience up. Don't worry about it. All right. So, <laughs> um, okay. So let's move on to the next category, which is wandering warriors. All right. So, wandering warriors shows are literally like they're old school westerns. 
I'm I'm not kidding about that. They're or they're usually okay. Usually they're not always. There's three different categories I I found for them or three groups of it. But I'm but the Wandering Warriors stories are basically westerns where the hero basically goes from like town to town. They're they're not set usually in cities. They're usually go the hero goes from town to town and they encounter bad guys and they you know again there's a formula here. I don't call them procedurals just because they're outside of that. Edo city thing, they're actually going across the country. But other than that, they're almost the same kind of thing. Heck, you know, uh, Mio Komon is still is traveling. He's almost a wandering warrior. I almost put him under wandering warriors, but he's just different enough to not quite fit there. Um, I'll give you an example. The first, there was a show called uh, Onimitsu Kenshi, which basically literally means like spy samurai or spy warrior. Okay? And this came out in 62. And this is the right, very beginning of this. In fact, it's kind of a little bit outside the period, but it's worth mentioning anyway. In English, it was called Shintaro the Samurai. And it has a whole story that goes along behind it, actually. Um, so what happened with this show, and this is why I mentioned it, it's historically relevant, is so in uh, 1963, I believe it was, um, Japan was hosting the Olympics. Um, I, it's the 63 Olympics, isn't it, Don? I'm going to double check that. Can you check that for me, please? Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, so Japan, so Japan's hosting the Olympics. All right, and and an Australian TV station decides that they want to introduce some Japanese cultural to Australia. Um, so what they did is they grab a popular Japanese TV show of the time, which happened to be Shintaro the Samurai or Onomitsu Kenshi, and they decide they're going to air a couple episodes of it. I believe with subtitles. They basically grab them. They subtitle a couple episodes. They're like here. So no, we'll learn about Japanese culture. Here's a popular Japanese TV show. And this is 62. These are the shows in black and white. The Olympics is 64. 64. Okay, there we go. Uh, the show is from 62. The Olympics is 64. Okay. I think this might have happened in 63 because they were getting ready for the 64 Olympics. Whatever. The key point is this. Makes sense. Um, oh, my God. Did the Australians go crazy for it? Australia. The Australians <laughs> thought, thought, you know, this show, Shintaro the Samurai, was the greatest thing that they had ever seen. And if we have an Australian listeners, they might have actually heard about this, heard about this. And so hmm. they, the station was deluged with people who, oh, my God, what happens next? You know, what's that? Um, Shintaro Samurai is done in 13 episode seasons, basically. So they're like, OK, we want to know, you know what happens next. And so they're like, wow, I guess there's a demand for this. So an Australian producer buys up the rights to it, dubs them in English and releases it as Shintaro the Samurai. And uh, there are 11 seasons of it, and there would go on to be 11 seasons of it anyway. And he kept dubbing it and releasing it, and, the, and it was literally the most popular thing on Australian TV. There's, you can actually find a documentary on YouTube, which I will link to, about this, the samurai ninja craze that this caused. Like the, in hmm. Australia and New Zealand, this was the most popular show. It was the show that like every kid was running around with samurai swords and dressing as a ninja because there are ninja in it too. The main character is not a ninja, but there are a bunch of them in it. And it was like it was kind of like it was kind of like the Power Rangers craze of the 1990s in America, but it was a samurai ninja craze. Um, now, actually, I should make a note. We'll explain why samurai, I say samurai ninja craze because okay, so here's the deal with Shintaro the samurai. It's a western. And I'm not kidding when I say it's a Western. He has a gun. And the whole idea is he's basically a Japanese Texas Ranger, except he's not literally Texas. He's been authorized by the Shogun to go up into the far north of Hokkaido, which is the far northern island of Japan and northern Honshu and that. And to basically wander around and look for bad guys and uh, investigate, you know, the nefarious doings of some of the local lords and such up there. Okay. 
and he's got his six shooter and he goes around. It's filmed like a Western. They've got the Ainu people, which are the other native uh, people of Japan. And they basically literally like do plots that are right out of a Western where except the Ainu are standing in for the, you know, for the first nations, for the, you know, Indian people of uh, the native Americans. And I'm not kidding. Like the first season is basically, it's a Western. He just keeps hmm. going from place to place, meeting like, you know, uh, women whose uh, husbands have been killed by bad guys usually. And, you know, helping here, little boy, here, little Taro, let me help you. It's like, you know, Shintaro, come back, Shintaro, at the end of the episode, you know, that kind of thing. Um, oh, I got the joke. Anyway, so the point is, is that I'm, I'm not kidding if you watch it. And, and you can watch it, actually. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll put, I'll put uh, links in the show notes. Um, you can still see it. It's available on YouTube and uh, archive.org has it, actually. And they're okay. But one weird thing about it is apparently the Japanese must have had a, like a 60s ninja fever or something. So the first season is like samurai, you know, him dealing with all these samurai. And then after that, every season is about him fighting a different ninja clan. <laughs> like there, it's just, hmm. it, it just goes all ninja all the time, second season on. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why the, um, why the Australians really got into the whole ninja part of it. Um, another, another Wandering Warrior series I wanted to bring up. Um, which is, I believe Onimitsu Kenshin might have been based on a pulp series, but the next one, uh, Namuri Kyoshiro, absolutely was. Okay, so during the samurai pulp era, there was this, I don't remember his the actual name, but one, but but there was a writer who basically created this samurai hero that was, again, a wandering ronin hero that, like, kicked butt. And uh, and then he created this this kind of, like, anti-hero character like rival character named Namuri Koshiro uh who would basically who the samurai character would meet well the audience absolutely fell in love with this anti-hero rival character and didn't care about the main samurai character at all <laughs> so the author ended up writing a bunch of novels and stories about this this guy this um and this character, uh, basically, who's sometimes referred to as the Sleepy Eyes of Death. He has another name. I can't remember what his name is exactly. But Nemiri Koshiro is, is the name he goes by usually. And if you see him, you'll know him. He wears like a white kimono. And he's got this weird kind of peak hairdo. And he's got a scar down the one side of his face. And and he, I think he might only be one-handed. But I can't remember if, if that's later on or early on. But anyway, they did a whole bunch of movies about him. And then in 72, they actually did a TV series. And to give you an idea, okay, about this character's origins, this will actually tell you a lot about this character, okay, to, uh, how much of an anti-hero he is. So his mother was a Japanese woman. Okay, so big deal, right? Okay, his mother, his father was a foreigner, uh, was a foreigner Satanist who impregnated his mother during a Satanic ritual. Okay. Old 1980s Batman. Oh, that's what I was going to say. He's basically kind of the original omen, is what he is. And wow. he really, really hates the Catholic Church. So a lot of the stuff he's doing is going around, like, exposing the evil deeds of the Catholic Church when it was still mm -hmm. in Japan. There's, all, again, another story behind that. And basically hunting down, like, secret Catholics and such who are doing evil stuff and... Um, killing them he also he kills a whole lot of gangsters and other people too but his but that's kind of his shtick is about that those catholics are evil and need to be hunted down <laughs> maybe because he's the son of the devil i don't know but you know give or take but but um that that one's one of the darker series but but again he's kind of the samurai anti-hero anti-hero wanderer character 
or he's Ronan, whatever you want to call him. Anyway, mm-hmm. so those are two are worth mentioning. All right, next I want to mention probably two of the most important series, probably the top two. These are easily the top two samurai TV series probably of all time. Okay, and oddly enough, they're paired with each other. All right, I refer to this this one as the Yagyu Saga. Okay, the first of these is the Yagyu Conspiracy. Uh, Yagyu, uh, Yagyu Ichizoku no Inbo, um, which would literally, which in English would actually translate to the Yagyu Family Conspiracy. So here's the deal. So the I believe it was the second Shogun passes away, and he basically is replaced by the third. But the third Shogun is just a kid, I believe, so he's actually, he's kind of weak. And this takes place not too long after the Shogun has been formed. So, so, we, so we've got the, we got the Shogunate that's, that's it's Japan that's still kind of coming together. There's still a lot of elements that are like fighting each other. The, the nobles, as we mentioned before, are fighting the Shogunate you know, indirectly for power, etc. All right. And so in all this, there's a family called the Yagyu family. And the Yagyu, they're, again, a real group. And they basically are, they, they're masters of the Yagyu uh, sword style. Okay, they're sword masters is what they are. And in fact, their sword style is so good, the Yagyu family are actually the sword masters for the Shogun, for, for the Shogun himself and the Shogun in general. So they basically, they're the sword, sword fighting ma- teachers of the Imperial family. So you might wonder, okay, what's the conspiracy deal? Well, what happens is, is there's all these evil lords, mostly evil lords, and you know, c- people conspiring against the Shogunate. They're also the Shogun's assassins, is what they are. In fact, the Yagyu Conspiracy would probably be better titled Shogun Assassin. That would be mm-hmm. Shogun Assassins. If you were to title it in English, that's what I would call it. Because that's literally what they are. They basically, uh, every episode, they investigate basically evil doings by either nobles or feudal lords. Like, for example, let's say some feudal lord is... Um, digging up a secret gold mine so he can buy weapons from foreigners that he's going to use to go in and overthrow the shogunate. The, uh, the, the, the head of the, the shogunate's kind of uh, advisor who basically tells the Yagyu, go over there and uh, find out if that guy's really got gold, and if he does, kill him. And then they're like, okay. And, so that, and that's kind of what they do. And now you might be thinking, oh my god, this sounds so brutal. Um, now, of course, on the surface, the Yagyu family are these upstanding you know sword masters who are just sword teachers but the thing is the yagyu also include a guy named yagyu jubei who again played by sunny chiba and in fact this might be his <laughs> his his either first or second most famous role of all time in japanese culture maybe for, i would argue first i would argue more, even more than his uh, shadow warriors his kagono gundan role vittori hanzo this would probably be his first and he's like this super sword master if you ever see him he wears all black he's got like his hair up in this like fountain of hair he and he's got a sword guard (laughs) over one eye because he gets one of his eyes shot out okay and again there were this these are stories from um the pulp era there are novels and there's pulp era stuff and basically and what happens is is that in the early part of this of this series he gets involved and he gets his eyes shot out and fight with some with a noble etc and he basically rescues uh, the survivors of a ninja village and that's killed by uh, by some evil nobles, and he basically turns them into his personal ninja team, okay? Which he refer and he takes lead- leadership of them and helps like nourish them and start rebuilding their ninja clan, new ninja village, and they're called the Ur Yagyu, or the Shadow Yagyu, or Hidden Yagyu. Okay, and again, 
this is stuff that's from like you know pulp le- that the Yagyu were real, but the you know, whole pulp legends and everything. And Yagyu Jubei is a character you'll find you'll find in lots of stories about him before this series. But this was an idea. This the goal of the series was to kind of take all these Yagyu stories that existed before and kind of bring them together in one place. And and so that's what they did. And they created thirty nine episodes of this. And I've watched this whole series all thirty nine episodes more than once. And like it is literally it is. It is brilliant, and they bring in. It sounds kind of brutal, but they brought in some of the best actors, the best directors. Like it was kind of the swan song for a lot of the great directors of the sixties and seventies. They brought them in to do episodes of this show. They brought in a lot of great writers, and of course, and Sunny Chiba is charismatic as hell. And you've got him fighting the him and his ninja fighting like basically all these evil nobles that are scheming to take down the shogunate. And and one of the best parts of the show is that. He, that um, the Yagyu are usually trapped because they're, like I said, they're meant to be assassins, but often they're being told to kill or take out people that they know are actually like, not maybe not innocent, but are doing the right, but are doing the, uh, but are doing what they think is the right thing or doing noble things themselves. So the, the thing about the Yagyu conspiracy is it really gets into this idea that you've seen a lot of Japanese stuff. And this, this will be mentioned again, so I should bring it up now. Um, of the idea of, uh, oh, is it Giri Ningyo? Okay, Giri means duty, and Ningyo means humanity. And almost every episode of the Yagyu Conspiracy, you end up in situations where the main characters are trapped between they've got their duty to the shogunate and what they they have to do, and then there's knowing what is the humane and right thing to do, and they have to figure out uh, kind of a weave that in between and figure out how to how to deal with that. Like, I'll give you an example, one episode, uh, very quickly. Um, there's one episode where this guy is basically becomes a kind of rabble-rouser against the shogun, against the shogunate, and he's a sword master. So, you know, the agate, so the shogunate's like, okay, Jubei, we want you to go out and kill this guy. And only small problem, he's Jubei's best friend. He's Jubei's mm-hmm. equal and best friend. So, so now Jubei is trapped between, do I kill this guy? Or do I, or do I, you know, or do I go against the shogunate? And he actually chooses, to, spoiler, he chooses to go against the shogunate. He's like, no, I won't kill him. He's my best friend. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll send the rest of your family to kill him. And the problem is, is that the rest of his family are not as good as him. And Jubei knows they're not as good as his best friend either. So he knows that if he, so he's a choice. He can either let his best friend kill his family or he can kill his best friend. See what I mean? Like it's all, like, and this is one of the things that makes a lot. You see these kinds of conflicts pop up a lot in many of the shows we've talked about, but especially in these Wandering Warrior series, it's very common where you'll find these conflicts between humanity and duty, and which you know which do you do first, and how does it all work out, and like that's where a lot of the core uh, depth and drama for these shows come from. Is like which do you do, and the Agu Conspiracy. Pretty much every episode is that kind of show where they're always trying to figure things out and which, you know, how do I handle this? And, you know, what's the best way to solve this problem without, without too many tears. And, and sometimes they end in tears. Like they're, these are not always happy endings, but they usually are, you should say, I should say reasonable. There's some episodes with happy endings. There's some episodes with reasonable endings and there's some outright tragedies. And that's what makes it such a great show. You never know what you're going to get as you're watching it. Hmm. Um, So again, I recommend. Actually, I think I did send you copies of Yagyu Conspiracy. Did you ever take a look at it, Don? I think I've seen a few of them because it's it is it it does sound uh, 
it does sound familiar. Right. The first, the only thing I'll say about Yagyu Conspiracy, so actually there's a movie version. Actually, what happened is, is that they did a movie called Shogun Samurai. It's kind of almost the mash thing where they did a movie called Shogun Samurai. It's, it's available in English. You can find it very commonly. And it's, and it was, it's Yagyu Conspiracy. It was, and it, it, it's basically the pilot for the TV show. Except I'm not sure, and I haven't been able to find out whether it was done as a pilot or where they did the movie and then said, oh, let's do a whole TV series based on it. It's kind of hard to say. But so the first two episodes are just the movie, you know, in two halves. And then the real show starts with episode three. And so where he starts to build. And oh, and this is the other thing. So and it, so and during the whole series, he's building up the Jubei. There's a whole series of plot lines where Jubei is building up this ninja team. And also, the more he, the more effective he and his ninja team come, the more the shogunate distrusts him, and the more he comes to hate the shogunate because they keep forcing him into impossible situations, and it becomes worse and worse. And I won't spoil how the whole thing ends. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it it has an ending. Um, now, they did do two more Yagyu-based TV s- series, and I can refer to them as series rather than seasons. Well, okay, like they're more or less seasons. Uh, one's about his sister, and then another one's about one of his cousins. And then, But they are basically just, they're, they're basically Midokomon is what they are. They're basically, they send Yag- members of the Yagyu family to go traveling across the land, finding bad guys and beating them up. <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> um, so, anyway, so that's the Yagyu conspiracy. Well, that I pair that with another show, which we've already mentioned, called Lone Wolf and Cub, mm. because in Lone Wolf and Cub, um, the the bad guys, the guys that the main character is fighting against, are the Uriagyu. In other words, the very same group that Jubei is creating in the Agyu conspiracy in Lone Wolf and Cub, Ido is taking them apart. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it occurs a couple... It actually does time timeline-wise. It occurs... Again, this is all some fiction. I don't know exactly how this comes together in Japanese, like, cultural fiction or whatever. But it, it happens, like, a couple generations later. So by this point in Lone Wolf and Cub, the Yagyu will become, like, these kind of corrupt puppet masters of the shogunate, basically. And uh, this this really corrupt faction is kind of corrupt. And so the Yagyu... So what happens? Well, the... Uh, actually, here, for those who are not familiar... What's the story of Lone Wolf and Cub, Don? <laughs> I was going to say what he said. So then the result is dead. Mountains <laughs> of dead people. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. There's there's a story in the uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub comic that that it, it, it it's one of the best that it literally ends with a mountain of bodies. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. And and that was that was the one where uh, what the story is is the main character Ito Ogami he was the executioner for the uh, for the the shogun mm. yeah and the yagyu uh it was a uh, yagyu retsudo retsudo the, yeah he was the head of the family in those stories and he wanted one of his i believe it was one of his sons yes to get the position so they make it look like ogami was guilty of treason and Ogami's given the choice that he can, um, he can, because he committed treason, he can kill himself or, or kill himself. It kind of goes back yeah, running yeah, basically, with these. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yep. <laughs> and he takes this other choice where he renounces essentially his humanity in general. And he follows the uh, Meifumado, mm-hmm. the dark road to hell. And he takes his son with him. And this is the one in North America, we've seen this 
there there's kind of a um a running series of Rick and Morty shorts that are parodies of this. Mm-hmm. There are many parodies oh. of this. Oh my God! Yes, there are. If you watch Bob's Burgers, mm-hmm. the uh, there's the uh, there's a uh, Hawk and Chick. Oh yeah, yeah, there is. Hawk and Chick is a, a parody of this, where instead of um, being the assassin, Hawk was the uh, the barber, as I recall, to the Shogunate. <laughs> and he wanders the countryside killing monsters and giving people haircuts now with his daughter. <laughs> but, but it's the idea that Ogami decides that he takes off. He takes his son with him. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of the, the best scenes ever where... The, the Yagyu, when the, the warrant comes out to bring Ogami in, to make sure that there's no dissenting voices, they murder his whole family. Mm-hmm. But they end up, uh, they didn't kill his, his son hadn't been born. They literally cut him out of his mother. But when Ogami shows up, you know, and sees the carnage, the kid's still alive. Mm. And he gives the kid the choice to follow him or he'd, uh, he'd kill him and let him be with his mother. And he puts a ball and a sword down and whichever one the kid and the kid wanders over to the sword mm-hmm. in the movies they do a great job of making you feel even worse about that because in the movie the sun is glinting off the swords so of course an infant would be drawn to the shiny thing eh? mm-hmm. yeah that's true yeah and, and it's ogami wandering he's he he's an assassin for hire and he's looking for evidence to clear his family name and that's essentially what the the story is, and it ends with tons of, of bodies. <laughs> well, two things. We, you're missing one small piece. He's all not just, He's actually hiring himself out to earn money so that he can bribe the right people because he knows even if he finds the truth, no one will care unless he can bribe the right people to actually do something about it. Yeah. And so that's why he, that's why he charges money. And I refer to Ito as the human lawnmower. Um, <laughs> Because that's literally what he is. He basically, yeah, he just, every story he goes through and he just, yeah, yeah. He, it's basically him cutting people down. That's pretty much I, it. Um, actually, technically, I think his, his son, Daigoro, mm. is the, he, who's about three in the main story. Mm. He's the human lawnmower because he pushes him around in his baby cart. And the baby cart is rigged with all kinds of crazy stuff. That's true. Yep, you're right. Because it. It has pop-out blades because there's there's like a story where Daigoro pops the blades. It's it's in one of the movies, mm-hmm. and and Ogami pushes the cart with the kid in it towards the enemy, and just the blades in the cart just chop through a whole big army of guys. Yep, yep, yep. You're right. It also has a Gatling gun later on in the cart too that he that he <laughs> yeah. takes. Because that's that's the story. Um, that's another one of my favorites. Where it's this this weaponeer. Because this is in the the uh, the early days of firearms mm-hmm. in Japan. Yep. Where this guy has invented the Gatling gun, and this like black powder version of it. Mm-hmm. And his three assistants are plotting against him to murder him and steal the plans. And he gets offended because he he basically he figures out they're up to something because he says i'm gonna leave them to you and he picks his newest apprentice and the rest of them are like oh congratulations they're like you people are idiots you should be this is the ultimate weapon you should be like murdering each other just for a look at these plans and he he ends up hiring ogami to kill off his his uh his assistants and then in return he gives ogami the gun right 
and he makes him swear that he will use it to build a mountain of bodies and testament to this guy's genius. <laughs> and holy shit, at the end of that first story, he does, because he's surrounded by an army. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, we've got you now. What are you going to do? And he whacks the cart, and his, like, cannon comes out and just mows everybody. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yep. it's, it's, and again, it's, it's one of those things that the Japanese do really well, because it's not just this, like, brutal, like, you know, gruesome, violent action story, which it totally is, but it's also brilliant because it's, mm-hmm. it takes advantage of a lot of, like, uh, Japanese history and culture, mm. and it works it in, and it works in a lot of stuff, um, Ogami himself has absolutely no moral compunctions about anything, so you don't mm-hmm. get that idea of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. But there's stories that you see through Daigoro, through his son's eyes, and that kind of, again, Daigoro doesn't really have any compunctions about right or wrong either. Yes. But you get you get this weird, very zen, and there's a story about that too. It's the Living Buddha, one, another great one. Mm-hmm. This weird detachment, and that's that's what the road to hell was. Is he's he's sacrificed his humanity. He en- eventually becomes a Zen master as part of that. Mm. And yeah, it's this weird kind of intellectual sort of discussion about endless brutal violence it's 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 a really trippy thing the to the 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 comic is great the Mm. movies are really good and yeah it's this weird kind of trippy sort of philosophical story with just mountains of blood and removed body parts oh yeah yeah no no i would agree with you and every story i would argue is actually i noticed when i was reading the comic and you can see it in the tv series too which i'll talk more about in a second um is actually about loyalty Pretty much everything mm. in Lone Wolf and Cub happens because because he's, he's dissecting the idea of loyalty and what loyalty means and such. So almost all the bad guys are always acting out of loyalty, and you know, and also all the quote unquote good guys are all acting out of loyalty to one, usually to a person or to an idea or something, right? They it's, they're all actually they all have concepts of loyalty and honor, personal honor and such that they're all trying to achieve something, and. One of my favorites, actually, is uh, there's a story, I'm trying to remember, it's in one of the early volumes, and it's in the TV show as well, where he encounters this woman who has based the short, I'll I'll keep it simple, the short version is is that there's this, um, he encounters this woman who is uh, prostituting herself, and oh, she's, she's she, she runs a ferry across the river. And she's also sleeping with the with the customers, the, the men who she ferries across. And so everyone hates her and everyone thinks thinks she, she's this awful person and such. And we eventually discover that she's actually taking care of this crippled samurai that the the, uh, the local lord was coming by, or one of his henchmen, I should say, was coming by and was going to kill her. And this, this guy was one of the lord's samurai and he st- stand and stood in front and basically said, no, no, I can... You know, I no, this isn't right. You shouldn't kill her. And so they they uh, they butchered him instead of her. And so now mm-hmm. she's basically because she needs the money for the medicine. So not only is she boating, she's being um, yeah. She, anyway, she's prostituting herself. But people won't even sell her food. Her life is hell because of this. But she's so determined to save this guy. Meanwhile, the guy who she helped is actually the descendant of this family that has that of engineers. 
and he is actually drawing up plans in her. He's they're drawing up plans for a bridge across this river, so the people won't have to be suffer anymore with the with the the ferries and everything. Um, that they won't have ferries and flooding. It'll actually fix the problems with the with the river, at least some of them anyway. And so he's working away because he knows that the Lord is going to be coming back soon, and he wants to present it to the Lord. And then Ido gets involved and. It's a fascinating story about loyalty and you know, doing what for why you're doing what you're doing and for who, etc. And um, pretty much everyone ends up dead at the end. That's just, what, <laughs> but it's, it's a lone wolf and cub story. Not everyone though, but uh, so it's it was worth watching. But anyway, speaking of which, so yeah, so lone wolf and cub was super popular, um, and I believe the manga has like 180 some odd chapters. Um, they did a couple movies, um, as as Don alluded to. There are six movies. Unfortunately, Lone Wolf and Cub was not done by the time they got to, I believe it's the fourth movie. So the first four movies are based off some of the better stories from the comic, and they're really worth watching. They're well directed. They're like, they're they're great. Unfortunately, movies five and six were done kind of they're just like well we're going to take a little bit of inspiration from the comic but especially movie number six is just bananas is the is the correct term i believe Uh, for it (laughs) if you see it so if you ever watch the movies yeah watch one to four and just skip five and six um to give you an idea of what i mean by bananas it involves a uh, basically it movie five the final battle is on a mountain with with them all on skis fighting each other and him using the uh, the cannon on the sled to gun down ninjas on skis. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's it's it's bananas. It's a, it's like it it totally it doesn't fit. It's just like it's just crazy stuff. I believe movie 5 is not very good either. Um mm. so that's so those uh, I might be wrong about five, but six is definitely not worth watching. I, I just I watched them like a year or so ago again, and it's oh. But anyway, but at the same time, <laughs> once it was done, they decided, well, let's do a actual TV series, and or as it was finishing up, they're like, okay, let's do a TV series version, and so they do the TV series, and the TV series is actually pretty good. There are like seventy eight or seventy nine, I think it's seventy eight episodes to the TV series. They did over three seasons, um, and it, I don't like the guy who plays Ido that much. Like the actor mm-hmm. who plays him, I don't know if you've seen him, Don, is just kind of like comes across as kind of weird and stiff. Right. The stories are really good, and the actors, plural, who play Daigoro are really good. Um, but the guy who plays Ido, I just I just don't like him that much. He just comes across he just comes across as odd. The guy who plays Ido in the movie, uh Tomi Saburo Wakayama. Okay, who is actually a very famous Japanese actor who's in like in I'm not kidding, he's in like hundreds of films that's not actually an exaggeration okay and uh tomi subaru wakiyama is he's very intimidating and he, he there's a there's a story actually about that where he showed up at the creator of lone wolf and cubs door basically and said you have to make let me be ito because i hear that you're here you're making a movie and they told him to go away because you're too <laughs> fat you go away, and so he so so he went, and he basically starved himself until he was thinner, and came back and said, "Okay, am I still too fat? Let me play, and let me be Edo." And they're like, "Oh my god, okay." And um, so anyway, he uh, he yeah, he does a great job. He's very intimidating. He does a good, but the guy who's in the TV series, he just comes across as stiff. Unfortunately, his name I can't remember, but he just comes across as very stiff. Um, but the TV series itself is still really good. It's still really good. I was actually, I wasn't sure it was going to, you know, 
it can't quite live up to the comic, but it does actually do, they do a really good job. Again, it's only like half the number of stories from the comic and they, they actually kind of sometimes put stories from the comic together in different weird ways, but, but it, it overall works. You know, they did a pretty good job with it. They, unfortunately, because it was done over a period of like three years and uh, kids grow up, they had to keep swapping out kids to play Diagoro, unfortunately, but you know, right. that's the way it happens. Anyway, so the reason Tomi Saburo Wakayama is so important is because of the final um, shows we're going to talk about, final Wandering Warrior series, which is the Zatoichi series. Okay, so Zatoichi, some of you might have actually heard of before. Uh, Zatoichi is a very famous character. Um, he was, I believe, um, he's actually a, yeah, he's the, he holds a record as being one of the longest running film characters in Japanese history. Um, the short version is this. He's a character that was created to star in a film in the, in the 60s, the Sarna Samurai film um, called Zatoichi. Now, Zatoichi... Okay, actually, I should explain Zatoichi first. That would make more sense. All right, so um, Zatoichi uh, is literally... His name literally means Blind Ichi or Ichi the Blind. And what he is is he is a blind uh, anma or masur, okay, who basically wanders Japan. He wanders around in Edo period, Japan. I think it's late Edo period. Um, going from place to place, gambling and giving massages to earn money. That's it. He's, he's a blind and he, he really is blind. He's a blind guy. Um, and they created this character and just for kind of, they thought, okay, this will be an interesting movie. So we'll, we'll do this. Well, people went nuts for it because there's a cash to Zatoichi. In addition to being a, a gambler who's very good and a blind guy and everything, he's also a super swordsman. He's a swordsman all, pretty much on Ido level. In fact, actually watching the Zatoichi TV series made me think actually Ido might be the number two killer in Japan. Zatoichi, <laughs> Ido might be number two killer. Zatoichi, I think is number one because oh my God, does he kill a lot of people. And he's famous <laughs> for his like, uh, he's got basically a sword cane. So he's got a cane and he's got the sword hidden. He just whips it out and super fast kills people. Back into the back into the cane so fast you can barely follow it, and what's really impressive is the actor is actually doing it. The actor got so good at it he's he really is just like whipping it out. They're not even really using film. They use a little bit of film trick, but not really, not not that much. And Zatoichi, if you want to understand what Zatoichi's character is like, he's basically a Columbo type character. That would be the best way. If you're familiar with the character of Columbo, Peter Falk's Columbo character, he's a lot like that. In fact, there's even some people who claim that um, that Columbo was inspired by Zatoichi. I think that might be a bit of a stretch, but anyway. So Zatoichi would end up starring in about 26 films, um, which were made from 1962 to 1989. And the actor Shintaro Katsu would end up becoming basically a household name, becomes super famous. He's not blind, of course, just the character is. But he plays Zatoichi with such an incredible likableness. He's he's such a likable character. It's it's almost you'd have to see it to really understand. But it basically he wanders from place to place and meets interesting people. And inevitably there's good people and bad people. And in the end of the story he'll kill the bad people. <laughs> because that's because that's how these <laughs> stories roll. Just like all right. of the ones we've been talking about. But in between Especially the TV series, because it was popular enough that they did a hundred episode TV series. So not only twenty six films, but Shintaro Katsu said, "You know, I think I'd like to make some Zatoichi TV so shows." So he made a hundred episodes of it, most of which are directed and written by him. Wow. Okay, 
he actually he didn't write most of the movies, but he's like, yeah, I'm going to make my own production company and we're going to make Zatoichi shows because he's so popular. And it's brilliant. Like the like every episode, like I said, it does follow the formula, but he's such a um, you know kind of both tragic and likable character at the same time, and it's. It's also very different from a lot of the other stuff like uh, Lone Wolf and Cub where it's very samurai-driven. Zadoichi is almost entirely existing inside the Japanese underworld with the Yakuza, basically, the Japanese gangsters and such. Because he's around gambling parlors, right? So yes, there are samurai involved in some stories and such, but there's actually a fair amount of stories where there's it's just about the gamblers. In fact, I'll actually tell you an interesting thing I learned watching about uh, Japanese gamblers. So back in the day, each Yakuza family has its territory, just like any gangsters, right? Okay, so if you're a gambler and you're wandering around and you need a, a place to spend the night because you don't have, let's say you don't have money and you want room and board, you are able to go up to any, you know, Yakuza uh, headquarters, Yakuza, you know, wherever the local Yakuza family is, you can go to their to their house, man or whatever it's called, and basically say, "Can you give me, you know, uh, you know, I'm a gambler." There's actually a ritual thing that you have to say. You'll see it sometimes where they go into an odd squat and they put one hand out, and they introduce themselves, and basically it's kind of like the secret handshake that says, "I'm a member of the underworld too." Can you give me a place to spend the night? Okay. And there's tons of Yakuza movies, and if you watch any of them, you'll see this goes on all the time. And so why is this important? Well, there's a catch to it, though. So they're obligated to give you, if you're a traveler, they're obligated to give you a place to spend the night and food. They're obligated to do that. That's it. And often that that's all there is to it they're you know it's just kind of a code of code of brothers right you know uh, code of brotherhood or something like that. But there is a small catch. If they ask you to help out with something, you're obligated to help them as well in trade for the food. Because remember, Japanese society is very much about balance and equilibrium. So here's the deal. The thing you're hmm. going to be most often... Don knows what I'm going to say. The thing you're going to be most often asked to do is kill someone. Because the thing is, you're going to be leaving within a day or so. You're not sticking around. So you're just a wanderer that came in and someone who the family didn't like happened to die, and then you disappeared, and no one ever sees you again, and no one knows what happened to you. See how this works? <laughs> and so, this is so it's very. You'll see this in Yakuza films all the time, where characters are being asked, where where characters in trade for you know room and board are asked to kill people, or beat people up, or harm people, or do all these kinds of things. And this is a very common situation now. What's interesting about Satoichi is he knows this, of course. Of course he knows this. So he never asks. Mm -hmm. He actually never stays with the local gambler, the local gangsters. He makes a point of doing that. But the problem is, is that inevitably what happens in many stories is, is that so the local gangsters get running, he runs afoul with local gangsters one way or another. And so the local gangsters tell the people that are staying with them, okay, to pay us back, go kill Satoichi. So Zatoichi often has to face down with people that are actually technically innocent. Like they're not involved here. They're just like, they're just, they're like, well, you know, I, he helped me. I have to, I have to, and Zatoichi is like, just, just walk away. This is not going to go with, you know, you're not going to win this. And so it creates all kinds of like conflicts and problems. And it's also, some of them are really funny too. The Zatoichi episodes, they, they do a good tonal base where some episodes are funny. 
He actually is really good. He's everyone thinks that because he's blind, they can cheat the hell out of him, but he's actually a super good gambler. <laughs> so he keeps, <laughs> so he keeps, um, so he keeps winning. And then they, that's usually why he runs a foul because they're, they all think they can cheat him. And when they discover they, that he's cheating them, they usually attack him. That's something that happens anyway. But the, there's a wide variety of stories and he meets all these different characters as he's wandering the land. And each story is really not so much about him, but about the people he meets. And uh, they're really fun stories and they're so well uh, shot and told. What's interesting actually is that this, at least the first season of the Jadoichi TV series is actually shot on film. They didn't shoot it on like TV cameras. They shot it on film and it creates, it's actually widescreen, which I was shocked when I suddenly was like, oh, wait a moment, this, this TV show is widescreen. And it is because it's basically shot as a, they're shot as films. Like each season is about 25 episodes. And uh, I highly, highly recommend watching them if you get the chance. Um, and Zadoichi's become such an incredibly influential character that if you if you actually watch any of them, you'll be like, "Oh, that guy." Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a, there's a lot. That's uh, Usagi Ojimbo has Zato Ino, who is the uh, blind swordsmaster pig that yep. Usagi cuts his yes. nose off. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 So he can't smell. Yep, yep. Um, they, there are actually, there are, there've been many takes on. Actually, there's a there's a movie that all Zadoichi fans are like, yeah, that's not by accident. There's this movie called um, Scent of a Woman with, I believe it was mm -hmm. Al Pacino that came out many years ago, where he's like a blind general that basically he has like it's if I remember right, it's kind of a weird rom com where this guy basically has to like help his knew his girl his fiance's father who's this like really he's this blind general character and yeah. he's Zadoichi. Like if you actually watch if you've seen Zadoichi and you watch Send of a Woman it's like it's it's huh. Pacino is playing Zadoichi. That's his basically take on that's his take on that character. He doesn't have the sword or anything like that. But the way he acts and the way he behaves, he's a little more a little more brush. But oh that's one other thing. Zadoichi is not a pure good guy either. He's actually a bit of a, um, mm -hmm. he's a little more amoral. Like he's generally a good person, but he's, but he has no problem with A, killing people or B, you know, he's, yeah, he's, he's more neutral than you'd expect actually watching, you know, with, from some of this. So that's, that's what also makes him a little bit interesting and unpredictable. He's not an anti-hero, but he oh. can be kind of like that. Um, so yeah, I, Zadoichi, I can't recommend it. Yeah. I'd say my top four out of everything I've recommended would be Yagyu Conspiracy, Lone Wolf and Cub, Aberinbo Shogun, and Zadoichi. Those are those are the things that are absolutely worth watching. Um, actually, I recommend the Zadoichi TV series more than the movies, oddly enough. The movies I find a little mm -hmm. bit uneven and sometimes a little bit too long. Whereas the TV series at 45 minutes, they right. kind of have to keep the story tight. And so that works out pretty well. Um, oh, by the way, um, one last addition. So there is a there's another TV series you might find uh, kicking around called Mute Samurai, um, which actually stars um, the guy a guy I mentioned earlier um, was it uh, Tomosaburo Wakayama, okay, um, who is the brother of the guy who plays Zadoichi. Even though they have different names, they're actually brothers. So Shintaro Katsu, who is the genius behind Zadoichi, he really he's amazing. He's like one of those writer director you know the singer of the whole threat basically his his he's the younger brother of Tomosaburo Wakayama and so the, what they decided is 
they he decided to help create a uh, they decided to do another show called Mute Samurai. Well, mute as you can see, it's kind of a take on this guy. Instead of being able to not see, he's mute. It only lasted for one season, and it's actually apparently based on a comic. They didn't actually create this character, but if you watch it, it's kind of a weird. It's it's a little bit weird because he's actually hunting this like this is unfamiliar. He's basically hunting this conquistador uh, <laughs> Christian conquistador priest who basically like killed his whole family and uh, cut his throat. But he managed to survive and is now one. The priest is somewhere in, in Japan. And so he's trying to find him and meets all these people on his journey to try of revenge to try to find this guy. And so that's called Mute Samurai. Um, so, and those are basically like the procedurals and the Wandering Warrior stories. Those are basically the, like, those are the kind of the top. There are a whole bunch of other ones I'm not talking about. But these are kind of some of the top shows that you are going to encounter that are mostly available with English subtitles um, that you, you'll find. Just to finish things off, um, there are actual samurai draw. There are, and even to this day, the Japanese do still produce samurai dramas. In 1963, uh, NHK, which is Japan's version of BBC or CBC, or it's basically their, it stands, it's basically their national broadcaster, um, started doing what they called the Great River Dramas or Taiga Dramas. Okay, and each one is between 40 and 50 episodes long, and they're usually about Japanese historical peer, uh, historical figures. And they're still doing them now. They've been doing them since 1963, and they do one every year. And many of them are epic stories about like samurais and sam and sometimes samurais' wives and and various great Japanese people uh, that have lived you know in Japanese history. Basically, they're kind of like giant Japanese historical history lessons, is what they are. Um, but they're also yeah. between 40 and 50 hours long. <laughs> Um, so I haven't, I've only, I've seen pieces of them, but I've never sat down and they're very well produced, but I've never actually sat down and watched any of them. But to this day, if you're looking for a Japanese, if you want a samurai epic that covers like a samurai's whole life and is not just, you know, an episodic adventure of the week show, they have those two. Um, I just wanted to bring that up, but except for them, samurai dramas kind of, they faded in popularity kind of with the type of that I'm talking about, these procedural samurai dramas and such episode of the week things. They kind of faded in popularity by the early '90s, and while they while you'll see them pop up now and then, they're fairly rare. Since then, like if you want to watch samurai stuff since the '90s, you'd mostly be watching, like I said, uh, Taiga drama, you know, NHK dramas, or there's been a handful of series that have popped up, but none of them are considered like classics. Basically, none of them are considered like you know the great shows like these ones that I've been talking about for the last hour or so are. Um, so in a lot of ways, that's why they say that the, you know, the great age of the samurai drama is finished. Um, by the way, if you were, if you're ever in Japan, there's an actual Jidai Geki, um, on demand. Basically there's a Netflix just for these wow. shows in Japan where you can watch all It's it's Toei basically. It's, it's what it is. It's Toei's, uh, Jidai Geki, uh, you know, service. And you can watch all of these things, but of course none of them are subtitled. So there's that. Um, which, so that's a bit of a problem anyway. Um, so that's basically it that for, for the great age of samurai TV. Um, one side effect of all these shows. Oh, I forgot. I was going to mention this earlier, but I forgot one side effect of these all being produced by Toei though is, and I will say this if, if you watched a bunch of them and I've watched a lot, the fact that they're all being produced <laughs> on about one square block of sets, all of them of the same sets. 
or one or two gravel pit locations kind of stands out after you've watched enough of them. It really, really does. I have to say, I like them. I like some of them very much. But I, but oh my God, are they using the same sets uh, it, it's for like everything? That, uh, it's like that, uh, that the, the caves in California that every American TV show has at least one episode set in. Pretty much, yes. It's, it, or or that yeah. rock that you, that Captain Kirk battles the Gorn on that pops up every packs up in everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, after a while you're like, uh huh. But you know, it kind of it kind of blends into the background. But but no, I'm not kidding. You know, probably all 888 episodes of Zenigata Heiji and you know all like thousands of Mito come. They're all filmed on the same sets. In fact, actually, you can even visit those sets. Believe it or not, there um, there's actually a Toei Kyoto Studio Park. And so when they're not filming on the sets, and sometimes even when they are, you can take tours. You can actually take, if you go to Japan to Kyoto, you can actually take tours of them. And you can, and you can even see them filming. They're like the sections where they're filming will be roped off, but they actually allow tour groups to kind of go up and kind of peer mm-hmm. over from the camera side, of course. And, and see and watch the dramas being filmed and such. So if you're ever in Japan, you can actually even see these sets. Um, and, but, and you can see the map of them because I've, I've looked at the map for the, and I'm not kidding. It's about two, maybe square blocks worth of, uh, set and that's it. Wow. And they film everything there, everything, which, which is why they have to be very creative <laughs> with the camera angles and dressing it up. And, but yeah, it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's my one complaint about having watched these. I don't know why I do find them fascinating. Like I said, there's, there's definite patterns to them, but they are very, the better ones anyway, like Abrenbo Shogun or Yagyu, they they bring a lot of draw. They bring a lot of heart to the drama, and they can be very engaging and interesting and and fun or tragic, or they can be very emotional to watch. Like I, I really enjoy a lot of these, and that's one of the reasons why I want to do this episode on them, is just because they're so interesting. At least to me, anyway. Um, I've always enjoyed these things. Um, but it is interesting, though, how the Japanese, to some degree, still do have these because, of course, as we mentioned earlier, these are basically the same as Westerns, right? They basically hold the same place as yeah. Westerns do in American society. And it follows a very similar pattern, except that the Westerns kind of died in, the I'd say, the early 1980s, maybe mid-80s. mid And the and we've seen, we see Western movies pop up now and then. And I think on a few of the cable channels and search streaming services, there is there is one or two Western TV series. They pop up from time to time. But the great age of the Western was really like the 60s and 70s. And the great age of the samurai dramas, I'd say, were, was has been the 80s, 70s and 80s. But, just, but again, just like the Westerns, they've kind of faded into time. Even modern Japanese people like them, but they're not, you know... You know, crazy yeah, about them. I think I not think like they once comparing were. them to to our westerns is probably dead on because they feel like you say they fulfill the same role. They're this glorified version mm. of what we consider an adventurous time in our history, like the westerns are here. Um, they come yeah. around in a cycle because I noticed the uh, if you go say the uh, late two thousand, early twenty teens. It looks like there was a little bit of a flare-up mm-hmm. of these kind of shows and movies in Japan. Yes. Uh, the one thing yep. that's weird that, was... that you might be able to kind of fill in here, mm-hmm. the only thing that I noticed that's really kind of different is we've talked about the cycle of entertainment. 
how you basically you age mm-hmm. up your story with your audience and at a certain point you do a reset and do kid stuff you never really see that mm-hmm. in japan they never really kind of aged down any of this stuff did they there's oh no they totally like, did like you're Lone actually missing Wolf it and cubs cub kind of no 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 you missed it you totally missed it that's what Sentai are. That's what oh, the Power yeah, Rangers but they is. never, they never do, um, they never do like a direct, like samurai one. Okay, yeah, you, uh, they sort of have. There have been a couple Power, there are a couple, a couple series where, they, but you're right. I see your point. They haven't done like kids samurai. The closest you've seen to that is there are a couple like animated ones, like the show, uh, Cat oh, Nin, Ninden right. or Samurai Pizza Cats. I mean, you'll see cartoons that yeah, they have done that. They have they have done like there are cartoons. There actually are uh, right now in Shonen Jump. There is actually a series called The Elusive Samurai that's actually based on it's kind of this kind of thing running in Shonen Jump right now. Except it's a lighter kids one. It's more of a comedy. So they have done it yeah. mostly in comic or animated form. You're right. They haven't really done any of these in. Uh, I just. That I've seen. I suspect that there may actually have been some attempts, maybe even uh, movies like, you know, Kid mm-hmm. Samurai or something like that that they've done. I don't know. Uh, definitely they've done Kid Ninja things in that. Um, that's an interesting point. Generally speaking, I think that these types of samurai stories are Mass firmly murder? rooted in... <laughs> well, that too. Um, I was going to say, firmly rooted in... I could, you could say... slightly more mature slightly more mature male entertainment right they were always intended like i said even back in the old days when they were the pulps they're still intended for the not exactly uh the 8 to 14 year old set but maybe their older brothers and maybe their Mm -hmm. dads and things like just like westerns right we don't i mean there haven't been that many quote-unquote kid westerns where they've tried to kid up westerns I mean, even when they did back in the eighties, they did like oh, was it Young Guns? Yeah. That was actually still a serious western. They you know just happened to star a bunch of pretty boys, but they but they still did it as a serious western, and it's kind of the same thing, right? The audience that likes these kinds of stories tends to be slightly older males. Some women love them too, of course, but it's mostly a male audience. Um, the the more procedural ones that you got into had a bigger female fan base, obviously. Um, Aberenbo Shogun, even my wife was watching, came through, saw me watching Aberenbo Shogun, took one look at uh, Matsudaira Ken, who plays the main character, <laughs> and it's like, who is that? <laughs> and, um, and it's like, he's so handsome. And, uh, and, um, and she's right, he is. He's like the most <laughs> handsome, charming guy. He really is. Um, and so you'll find that, or, or they, you know, you know these, so I shouldn't say they didn't have female audiences, but they were definitely you know, slightly more male-targeted yeah. action shows, most of them anyway. Um, but, and I think that it's kind of one of those things where it's just kind of like, as you said, just like Westerns. It, they're, West, Westerns come and go, right? But they're always still ultimately targeted towards men and an ever-increasing, ever-older-aging group of men, unfortunately, yeah. at least in the case of Westerns, for the most part. Like, if you think about it, Westerns, who are, there are no teen boys reading westerns today not unless their fathers or grandfathers got them <laughs> gave them some louis lamore books and said here read this yeah that's like that's not happening right um 
even my father, who's a big Western fan, couldn't get me. I actually did read a few Louis L'Amour books. Eventually, got me to read a couple of them, and I'm not a big fan, but I understand. I, I they're well written. I'm just, but for some reason, that's just one of those things. But if you do a Western TV series, uh, you'll get some people in their 20s, maybe a few older teens, but it's still going to be mostly men watching. There was one. There was a couple. There've been a couple Western TV series. There's one Hell on Wheels that was on not too long ago. Oh, there's another one that's running right now, and I can't remember the name of it. I think it's on HBO. Uh, crap. Whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is is that we are still doing them, but the modern Westerns that they're doing to more tend to be the saga-type Westerns. They're not doing – they don't do, you know, yeah. Adventure of the Week stories anymore like, like, like they did. We're like Gunsmoke or Bonanza or those other shows. Which basically held the same cultural position, as we said, in the United States. In fact, actually, that's the thing, right? If you watch, if you watched Gunsmoke, Bonanza, uh, Have Gun Will Travel, oh, what is it? Some John of the other, Slaughter. you know, the other classic westerns. If you watch them, <laughs> there we go. If you watch the epi- if you watch some episodes of those, and then you come and then you go watch these Japanese, yeah. like it's beat for beat, right? That's what I was mentioning earlier. Even the procedurals. If you watched a like Hawaii Five O, or if you watched like a sixties cop procedural drama, and then you watch one of or seventies one, and you watch one of you know an episode of uh, Toyama no Kinsan, or um, like you know Zenigata Hage, it's like oh yeah, you you this it's the yeah. same thing. It's exactly the same. They 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 play out. They pace exactly the same way. They really do. Even even Abrenbo Shogun does, does to some degree. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that it's one of those things where I think they're slowly aging out because the purpose they served, whatever it was in our society, just like Western served in our society, samurai shows in their society is slowly changing or disappearing. Like maybe there'll be some big revival of them in Japan, like samurai ninja shows. I think they'll always be there. Just like Westerns will always be here, but their great age of popularity is basically Looking at here... One of the things that happened with Westerns mm. is when you get again, like you were saying, Westerns kind of peter out when you sort of get into the early mid eighties. And I think it's because in the entertainment cycle, that role gets taken over by cop shows. And that's why cop shows. Yes. Yeah, exactly. When you get to like the eighties, start getting a little silly because they're not proper cop shows anymore. They're a weird mix of, of cops and robbers and the wandering two gun kid that comes in the town and cleans everything up. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I mean, there's not much difference between uh, an episode of one of the wandering warrior shows like, um, you know, Zadoichi, I guess, yeah. and uh, Knight Rider, really. I mean, they're still ultimately the same kind of show um, where, you know, the, the wandering hero just kind of goes from, uh, comes in, finds well, there, some there, stuff that's wrong, fixes it and though. leaves. That's yeah. Kit Kit doesn't drive through a crowd of guys and skid on their bloody corpses <laughs> as he's like going by. <laughs> well, you know, I I know I make it sound like these are actually really brutal, and they are to a degree. But because these shows were almost all of them were done for a general audience, yeah, there's actually almost no blood. Like you know, the character the the there'll be a little bit of blood, a you know, for a wound, for example. But if I but the hero will like, you know, Zadoichi will slice, 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 but there's no blood on his sword. The people will just go, ah, and fall over. You know, it's 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 like a, you know, Lone Ranger episode <laughs> where, uh, you know, I'm shot and he falls over. Yeah. That's basically how it plays out. 
even even though even when they're <laughs> you know killing themselves in Abrenbo uh, Shogun, you don't see it. No, it's very the only one that actually is somewhat bloody, and even that's well, very yeah, limited. Is the Lone Wolf and Cub series? The Lone Wolf and Cub has more blood in it, but then again, it's really really yeah. toned down compared to the comic and the movies. Like the Lone Wolf and Cub, they yeah. couldn't not have some blood in it. But it, but if you're watching the other ones, like when yeah, like I said, when you know, and a lot of the, like I said, Abrenbo Shogun, um, the main character there, Shinsan, he basically he he purposely flips his sword around so he's hitting them with the blunt side, so he's so he's not actually yeah. killing all the bad guys. He just the leaders usually get executed, but it's usually not it's usually not directly by <laughs> him. It's someone else who, who who takes care of. It. But all the thugs they just get a, they just get a, a couple bruises and get left over. Actually, bleeding is a plot point in a few of them. Like the uh, the tiger flute yes, in one yes, of the early is. stories. Like that's actually the idea that it's the, when you cut the artery, it's that mm-hmm. whistling noise that the blood makes as mm-hmm. it spurts out the injury because you cut an artery in the neck. Like it's a plot point how much people bleed in that comic. I, if I recall, I that's not in the TV show. They that's one of those. There's a mm. number of episodes they skip, and that's one of them. Um, at least as far as I know, they I noticed the TV show kind of. Re, I haven't watched all of it. I've watched about half of it, and they 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 they, they both skipped and sometimes rearranged episodes. I think some of it had to do with budget. Some of it had to do yeah, with set locations. You know, there are various reasons. Basically, like twenty five volumes. Yeah. Oh, 28 volumes. And yeah, you're right. The TV show does the TV show does go to the end though. It does go it covers the right. end, but it doesn't cover all the stories in between. You could say it covers the major plot points, and I believe there are a couple episodes that are actually original to the TV show that are kind of either composites or, right. you know, kind of to fill in some details here and there. Um, but actually the TV show I really like. Like the TV show I I didn't think I I you know, having read the comic more than once, I thought, uh, I'm probably not gonna like it. But no, actually, like I said, except for the main actor being a little mm. on the stiff side, you kinda get used to him. The TV show is really good. Like they 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 do a good job of dramatizing some of the stories and even giving right. them a little more depth mm. sometimes. So that's you know, that's definitely worth uh worth worth it. Oh, by the way, since I did promise, um, before anyone, if you want to watch the vast majority of these, uh, there's a website called jp-films.com, which I discovered a little while ago. It is basically a series, it's a site that's basically dedicated towards, as you might suspect, you know, um, Japanese movies and television shows. It, of course, is not exactly legal, but, you know, whatever. It um, <laughs> it offers you, um, there will be all subtitled in English, and it offers you a series, uh, it offers you, you three servers uh, that are paid and three servers that are not. If you go for the quote-unquote free servers, they basically make you watch ads, you know, to get access to it, to get access to it. And I would definitely use a ad blocker while you're going in or a virus scanner because, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, remember, this is this is a, a pirate site, basically. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if you consider paying a couple bucks for it, you can get the high speed, you know, high definition servers without any of the ads or without any issues, and that's pretty nice. Um, and they have pretty much every series. It the show the site itself is mostly a site of um, uh, mix of movies and such, like uh, mostly softcore '70s porn movies and. Japanese porn and T and that'll get many of you going and uh, that doesn't help <laughs> and, and uh, TV shows and samurai action TV shows including some of the Taiga dramas 
the the Great River Epics. If you want to see some of them, you'll find them there as well. Um, I recommend so jp-films.com. Like I said, be careful with the servers. Make sure your antivirus is up and your ad blocker is up if you're going. But they have pretty much all the series I mentioned, plus a bunch of others. Um, and you'll be able to find them there with English subtitles. You can also find some of this stuff on uh, on YouTube. Uh, some people have put some episodes or some series up. Um, and archive.org. If you type in if you go to archive.org and type in some of the names, some of those shows are available there. We might put a few links in the show notes if you want to come check it out at obeythedna.com uh, to check them out as well. But like I said, out of the out of the series we've mentioned, I generally recommend obviously Aberinbo Shogun, um, Yagyu Conspiracy, Lone Wolf and Cub, and uh, Zatoichi, the TV series. Those are the ones I really recommend. But the other ones are kind of interesting depending on your taste. Unfortunately, like I said, Mido Komon's not available, but you can find episodes of ev- pretty much everything else we've mentioned um, somewhere in English. And my hope is, and this is something I really do expect to happen, because I've noticed that they've started to get really good at um, AIs basically dictating the voice. Like on, if you go on YouTube and put in uh, and ask it to dictate you know, what people are saying on YouTube, you know, closed caption, uh, AI closed caption, they're starting to get pretty good. And what I'm expecting is probably going to happen within easily within the next 10 years. You'll be able to get a subscription or go to something like the Jidai Geki uh, official Toei one in Japan. If they'll give you access, you'll be able to pay the fee and you'll probably be able to watch them with English subtitles where what they're doing is they're using the AI to, trans, to translate it to Japanese and then translate it to English from there. They may not be great English subtitles, but it will mean that their whole whole library of all this stuff, including many shows I haven't mentioned that aren't available in English at all, will eventually be available. Because yeah. the Japanese do have all thousand episodes of Mido Komon, as far as I know, available on film. It's just they're not available in English. Yeah. Well, there's also the option. You just go to university for four and a half years and learn Japanese. <laughs> uh, a little more than four and a half years, dude. But yes, yes, it would, uh, <laughs> depending on how skilled you are. That is true. You could you could always do that too, but I think I'll probably just wait for them to. Uh, I, <laughs> I like I said I'm I haven't I've watched episodes of everything except Mido Komon that we've talked about. Um, I have not finished all of them though, um, and I'm looking forward to finishing all of. Keep I've still got some a few to go, shall we say, and including a couple of series I didn't mention here um, because it's a lot of content, and so I'm slowly working my way through all of it. But I want it to you know talk about this with you and our audience because yeah some of this stuff is really entertaining and it's it's fun to watch and uh, i highly recommend if you get the chance mm-hmm. um any thought any final thoughts don i have noticed something weird oh we, we make a lot of suicide jokes on this show <laughs> we do yeah it, it's probably the um the uh, second most frequent disturbing topic right after dinosaur porn that pops up in many episodes. Where did we mention suicide in this conversation? <laughs> We're talking about the, uh, Aberanto Shogun guy. Oh, oh, right. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. He might force them to quit. <laughs> but it's old Japan. I mean, they, you know, that's, that's, that's what you do. If you, if a Lord is bad and his boss finds out, he makes him commit suicide or well, correction, he commits suicide to make up for his mistake because otherwise, like I said, usually his whole family will suffer. It's like it's the way to basically wipe away the dishonor, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Yeah, yeah, no, and for you that I I wouldn't say we were making jokes. Okay, maybe a little about about it and such, <laughs> but it does. But yeah, in Japanese stuff, it pops up a lot because, like I said, it's the best way or one of the the major way to wipe away your dishonor in in this super um, tight situation that these Japanese were in during the Edo period, especially right where. Like I mm-hmm. said, it's a police state. Like you, you one wrong move and everyone you love is screwed. And they actually did. They, this comes up in Aberenbo Shogun, actually. They actually had a rule that if someone if someone of a certain status committed a, a crime, his whole family was responsible. Mm-hmm. And that usually meant his whole family died. And usually his whole family would be executed. Yeah. I mean, that's there's actually an episode of Aberenbo Shogun about that, actually. Um, where, yeah, because that, that's, that's the way it was. And they eventually did abolish that rule. Um, in mm. fact, it was Yoshimune from Aberdeen Shogun who actually abolishes that rule, and he really did in history too. Um, but prior, but that that was the rule, right? And you know, even the kids were expected to uh, commit suicide, or they were helped along. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, no, it's um, unfortunately it can be. It's like it's interesting. I guess one of the reasons I find it so fascinating is because. Often, some of these stories are kind of grim. Like some of these stories are kind of are kind of gritty in a way that modern TV and stuff isn't. And at the same time, you're, it can be still light and fun and kind of still end, ends with a happy ending. So, again, actually, you, if you watch old American westerns, you'll find a lot of them are like that too. I've noticed. Watch some mm-hmm. '60s westerns. Sometimes some of them, you know, they don't always have happy endings. Usually they do, but some of them they can have tragedies too. The Japanese do love their tragedies though. I will say this, yeah. they love their tragedies. I guess it's probably because the Japanese view, and this applies to their comics as well, where they view these story, a story is basically emotion. That's its goal, right? Is to bring emotion out of the audience. And if a story doesn't bring emotion out of the audience, it's kind of failed, at least from the Japanese right. point of view anyway. So all of these stories, many of them are what we would consider kind of like overdramatic in many ways, but... It, get, it does the job, right? Like a lot of them are, mm-hmm. you know, they have their happy moments, their sad moments. They, it takes you through a, a roller coaster of emotions as you're watching them. And sometimes it ends in a ha- really happy place. Sometimes it ends in a not so happy place, but usually <laughs> balanced. Usually you, like you, usually you feel by the end of the episode, it's like, okay. Now the procedurals almost always end happy. The vast majority Ish. of them do, I should say. Just like... Here, just like an American cop drama almost always ends with a mostly happy ending where you justice is restored, the balance is restored, all is right with the world. That's how a procedural is going to end. Even the Wandering Warrior stories usually tend to end that way too. Except for Lone Wolf and Cub, but that's an entirely different story. Um, (laughs) It it depends on your perspective. (laughs) Oh, this is true. This is true. It depends on your perspective. Um, But... uh, I mean, it's, it's been pretty fascinating watching these and learning... I've learned actually a fair bit of Japanese culture that I didn't really understand before. Like I've, I've been reading manga and going through the stuff for many years for, wow, almost 30 years of my life, really. But actually sitting down re- in the last you know couple months and watching all these shows, which is one of the reasons we're doing this episode now, um, <laughs> has really opened my eyes to a lot of cultural aspects. Like I said, the Giri Ningyo, I kind of understood it before, but watching Zatoichi has really made me understand it. And even watching, mm-hmm. even even now, I can see it in Yagyu conspiracy and the other places where uh, how they're how they're balancing the conflicts of duty and honor and uh, and just humanity. 
and also watching uh, i've watched some yakuza movies and such too and that's also helped me understand it as well and you have to understand uh, also audience that not all this the japanese stuff like this is specifically the samurai ninja stuff they've got tons of other you know cop shows medical shows dramas just like just america like america right uh they've even yeah. got gangster shows those exist as well and in fact during the 1960s gangster dramas were super super massively popular there was actually a period in the mid to late 60s, early 70s, where they actually went through a massive, uh, you know, Yakuza phase where nobody, you know, samurai, uh, who who cares about those guys? It's all about the, it was all about the gangsters. They were the cool ones. Yeah. And, uh, but that's a whole other show's worth of topic that we can, we'll get to eventually, <laughs> I imagine. Um, we also didn't yeah. talk about the movies and um samurai movies is its whole other thing that goes on that it's got its whole other parallel history that's going on to this and yeah you know one other last thought that i've had that uh, i want to bring up and then we'll finish there for this is that because i have basically been viewing japanese cultural history for the last hundred years through the lens of animation and comics right mm-hmm. and one of the weird side effects i realize of this is is that I've got this idea somewhere in my head. This is and now I realize it's wrong that Japanese storytelling and was fairly primitive and was evolving over the 20th century, which is not wrong. It was, but I realized now that there were damn good, you know, you know, writers of stories of novels and pulp and whatever in Japan, just like in America, in the very early half of the 20th century. Like, you know, the Japanese writers and audiences that were just as complex in the early parts of the 20th century as they are in the later ones. But because I was viewing things through as animation and art evolved, my idea was, that oh, they were more primitive at that time. But they weren't. They were just telling stories in uh, text form, like in, you know, in books and such that I wasn't seeing. And I only realized that now when I've been wa- watching movies based on like novels and shows and things like that and going back through this Japanese material and even the TV shows we talked about today, I've been seeing the other, I've been seeing how advanced Japanese writers and directors and everything really were, right? There's so much more to what the Japanese were doing than just say Kurosawa, for example, <laughs> Um, even prior to Kurosawa, there were, there were, you know, there, they were just churning out like novels and pulp stories and things like that. They didn't have comics back then. So they just, it was all in print. And so we, we, we don't read any of it. We don't see any of it because it had, most of it's either been lost or not translated. Yeah. But it, they were just as into it and just as energetic and just as lively back then as they are now. It's just that, how can I put this? I guess it's open, what I'm trying to say is it's open watching these shows and watching and learning about their history and that has kind of opened my eyes a little bit to my own uh, chronological blindness. No, that's not quite the right term. Um, I think you know what I'm talking about. Where I yeah. where I'm I have I have a I've a limited I have a sorry <clears throat> where I've become aware of my limited perspective and that and my skewed perspective in how I was viewing the advancement of Japanese popular culture basically during the 20th century and that it there were a lot of flaws in my view and now I've become more aware of them that's all I'm trying to say yeah it's it's I think because well, what happens is you sort of when you you fall off the beaten path mm-hmm. Uh, like with pop culture 
And regardless, even if you're talking, say, like our own, like North American stuff, mm, true. you hit a point where you'll start finding things and you realize that there are these whole other avenues that you've never looked down. Mm. And when you start going down these other routes, you have to sort of relearn a lot because it's 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 different ways of telling stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, exa- the example that I use is um, we live right right next to the states yes and you always hear about like hollywood films the big hollywood films you don't realize that other countries have the equivalent Mm. yeah and that other countries will spend like hundreds of millions of dollars on stupid movies just like you know america does Mm -hmm. but you never hear about it because again that's off of that beaten path for us because again it mostly proximity yep oh no no absolutely yeah and not just Japanese films or French films, but pretty much every country in the world, almost every country anyway, is making movies and has been for decades. Mm-hmm. They have their own and popular culture. They have their own like hero stories. They have all this stuff and they have they have all along. We just don't see it. Yeah. And a lot of what they produce, it's it's giant big budget stuff, too. They have like um, these days. The, yeah. The, they have their equivalent of the undergrounds. They have like independent artsy film. Everybody does that. And then when you're talking about, say, another country like like even Japan, it can be difficult to tell what's a big budget, their equivalent of, um, say, like a Marvel film. And what's their equivalent of like a, an art house film? Because there's there's all kinds of that cultural difference. And then mm. when you start when you get that exposure and you piece it together, yeah, you realize that this whole thing, like the the samurai like TV shows in that, mm-hmm. we get little sniglets of that here. We always we always did, but then if you look into it, you realize, holy crap, there's just so much there, yeah, that we never hear about. It's it's the idea, like for me, with your um the old Japanese super robot cartoons, mm-hmm. yeah. There, there's just always ones I've never heard of. And they only made these things really for about a decade. But there's so many of them because this was yep. such a big thing. Mm-hmm. And we just got little tastes of it. So you don't, you don't realize that. Yep, exactly. And exploring other cultures like, can bring you new ideas as well. Like there was this guy back in the 70s who was watching this stuff. I, his name was George Lucas. And he was watching all these Japanese shows that were in movies. And he thought to himself, wow, you know, that I like the style of that. You know, I, I like the way these guys are like these adventure, these Champara adventure films, and swashbuckling Japanese. That's pretty good. I wonder if we set that in space. How would that work out? And I think I've mentioned the show before that the word, you know, you might know that the word Jedi Geki, Jedi, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? it sounds like Jedi. Yeah, that's where he got it from. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of these stories, if you speak, you know, if you sci-fied them up and gave the samurai space, gave them, you know, lightsabers instead of swords, etc., etc., there'd be almost no difference. Like, you could turn some of these into Star Wars series if you wanted to, which is with very little effort and keep the same style and keep a lot, and it would very, it would change very little. It would change so little, you'd be amazed, actually. Um, Japan did tons of those. Uh... In animated form, because they couldn't really afford to do the live action stuff. Oh, no, they did. They did a bunch of. I'm thinking like Message from Space and 
That was their attempt at Star Wars, but it never really, but it, Message from Space was actually considered a flop. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. They did the TV series, and then that's pretty much it, dude. There's not that many. What was the one we watched like a million years ago where everybody had that like headband that measured your power? And then, and then they got everybody there trying to get the warriors oh, together. Oh, you're talking to about, it was called like, yeah, it's called like Robo Ninja or something like that. They called it in English. I don't remember what it was called, but you're right. And that was, that was an attempt to do that. Like the Japanese have done them, but they're very, very, uh, live action ones are very, very, uh, spotty. Bad? Yeah, well, there's silly. that too. It's spotty, <laughs> silly. I mean, the, you know, they, yeah, because there's not much, they don't have the money for them. And in fact, actually. Well, they didn't. Hmm? They didn't back they, then. They didn't back then. They still don't now. Uh, it, it, well, they so actually, they kind of do now because now they've got streaming services like Netflix willing to pony up for some of it. Mm-hmm. But traditionally, they've done those as animated films. And in fact, actually, that is one of the things about samurai dramas. I mean, you know one of the reasons why they still do samurai dramas and we don't do period dramas? Because period dramas are super freaking expensive to make. They really are, yeah. at least in North America. Because even if you take going out to the West where you need the Western sets and everything, you need, farm, you need all that stuff. These samurai dramas, like I said, they're all made on two square blocks of, this, of these sets <laughs> in Kyoto, just outside of Kyoto. Think about that. They, they have, once they have the costumes, once they have everything, they're, they're, they're set. They're ready to go. That's why they can churn out like 888 episodes of the damn thing over a period of years. Because I'm not kidding. They literally just need set time. And it's not that expensive because everything's built. Yeah, it's like you just the, need the, scripts. The westerns here were hmm? the westerns here were like that too. But then they started dismantling all of the uh, the old sets for space. Because if you watch the old TV shows, yeah, like, yeah. they it's it's that same idea. A lot of this looks familiar, and mm-hmm. then then when Ricky and Lucy end up in that weird little southern town, that whose gal looks really really familiar to yeah, me kind yeah. of thing yeah yeah so true. it's same idea yeah yeah i know i know they had the they had the city set they had the western set in hollywood i mean they had all those yeah you're right same idea except that the i i'd still say because you don't need hor- well they sometimes have horses in the japanese stuff a lot of gravel pits apparently um yeah. the the japanese stuff i still say i think they did manage to set it up so it was a little cheaper to film like they they did, yeah. whereas I think the Hollywood stuff tended to actually push things a little more, um, and like effectively the Japanese stuff again. Remember the Japanese are more theatrical as well, so their tradition is more stagey. So they don't mind really. Like the audience is aware that they're looking at the same yo know, sets, but they don't care because like okay, it's it's that period whatever. They're watching the actors, right? They're watching yeah. the actors do their thing. They're not watching the stage or the or the sets. We we had that movie that kind of killed westerns here. I can't remember. It was, it, what, you mean yeah. Unforgiven? No, that was the one that saved westerns here. The one that killed it. It was a uh, shoot. Was it like late seventies, early eighties? Like the old west roller rink thing. The what? It, the, oh, what the hell was the movie called? It, it was like twenty hours long, and I think like a hundred horses died during like stunts and. It, it, was it, it like was just, Heaven's Gate or something? Or? Yeah, something like that, like Heaven's Gate or that. Yeah, and that's, and that's, I, I don't remember it really well because I, even as a kid, I remember it was terrible. Right. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was a massive flop. I, all I remember is it's like, or Paints from Heaven, whatever. It was, it was a huge, massive flop. I do remember that. And that was one of those yeah. movies that I think it bankrupted the studio and basically, yeah. you know, that was, it's kind of like, okay, that's the end of that. We're not going to do that anymore. And uh, I think that and the Lone Ranger 
uh the like dark gritty lone ranger when they rebooted it yes yeah and the same it was the same time too i think that was kind of what killed westerns here well and they they even tried bringing back the wild wild west in that horrible thing with will smith and uh (laughs) kevin klein if i remember right and yeah yeah they they tried a couple times and it just didn't work um yeah so well the the lower budget stuff did because young guns was popular and yep unforgiven was pop but it's yeah it never it they could never i think it was that roller rink thing was just so burned into north american culture you'll never they could never do it when it worked oh it's gonna bug me what the hell was that because was chris christopherson in it too it was like all kinds of big names and it costed a zillion dollars yep that sounds right well you know it was just that happens anyway we should probably we should probably finish here so (laughs) If you want to find out what it was called, look in the show. Come to ObeyTheDNA.com and leave a question or comment and or check the show notes for links to uh, a lot of what we talked about or maybe even you can make some suggestions about stuff about stuff you've seen or you think we should check out. In any case, mm-hmm. thanks everyone for listening to this episode and listening to us go on, me go on, uh, us and me especially go on about uh, samurai <laughs> dramas and such. It's It's been something I just really enjoy and I want to share with all of you. Tune in next time for another exciting episode, probably even more exciting than this one, where we'll be talking about, well, tune in and find out. See you next month, people. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember... The to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!